Good morning, Gator Nation, and welcome to a special crossover show. It is the 2022 Florida Gators State of the Program Address podcast of the In All Kinds of Weather forecast. I am your host, Neil Shulman. You can follow me on Twitter at All Kinds Weather, on my new Instagram at All Kinds Weather blog. Long story, not worth getting into. Uh, and today I'm joined by three special guests. Chris Yanes, our new contributor at the In All Kinds of Weather Forecast, David Soderquist of Getting Swamped, and Zach Goodall, who covers the Gators for Sports Illustrated, are all here to help discuss the current state of the program. A ton to get to today. Honestly, I'm expecting this show to go anywhere between two and three hours, so let's get right into it. As always, starting off the show with a quick word about our sponsors slash partners. We are proudly partnered with the Gator Good Foundation, the nonprofit organization that works to send an underprivileged Gator fan to the swamp. For those of y'all who are new listeners, the Gator Good Foundation collects donations from fans and uses them to bring someone to his or her first ever Florida Gator football game. We pay for flights, rental cars, hotels, game tickets, gear, swag, food, and anything that's necessary to make sure that they have the swamp experience of a lifetime. We have closed our applications for this season, about to choose a finalist, but if you believe that you or someone you know is worthy of the honor for next season, please email us at GatorGoodFoundation at gmail.com. As always, though they're not expected, donations are always very much appreciated. To donate to our cause, please go to our website, GatorGoodFoundation.com, and click on the donate button. Secondly, we are proudly sponsored by Stingray Branding. These folks will put a sting into your marketing and deliver results that will wow your clients. Whether it's web design, logo design, branding, graphic design, social media management, search engine optimization, marketing strategy, or mobile app design, Stingray Branding has you covered. If you or someone you know needs professional help in any of the above or anything else digital marketing related, three great reasons why you should choose Stingray Branding. Number one is it is a veteran-owned business. Can't really think of a better way to properly thank those who serve our country than by giving them our business. And number two, it's run by a UF alum and a big time Gator fan on top of the fact that he is an alum. So yes, they do great work, but they do great work and they're owned by a UF alum that happens to be a US veteran. And number three, they've got the personal stamp of approval from the In All Kinds of Weather brand because they not only did the Gator Good Foundation website, not only did they do the Gator Collective new website, they also did the new In All Kinds of Weather logo. So, oh yeah, and they've got more Gator-related stuff on the horizon that you should keep your eyes out for. So they do great work, and they're owned by a UF alum, and they're owned by a U.S. veteran. And I can personally vouch for them given that they did an amazing job with my new logo, and they've got some new Gator stuff coming up in the near future. So anyway, with... That all taken care of. Today is our state of the program address, which is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. Uh, we've got an awesome panel of people today with all different sorts of perspectives to help deliver that state of the program address. Myself, I addressed myself at the top of the show, Neil Shulman, uh, founder of In All Kinds of Weather. But of course, no, no great panel is complete without elite guests, and we've got them today. Um, you'll remember Chris Yanes at Mr. Crispitz on Twitter. He is our newest contributor at the In All Kinds of Weather forecast. David Soderquist 
gettingswamps.com. That is a, I think that's a fairly new podcast, but it's taken off pretty quickly, Dave. So uh, hats off to you on your success so far and can't wait to see it keep growing. And Zach Goodall, Sports Illustrated, you may remember him from the Missouri game preview in 2020 on this show. Gentlemen, how are we doing? Fantastic. I'm uh, I'm excited to be back. Really looking forward to this season too. So no better way to get ready than uh, than to do a state of the program. Yeah, absolutely. I'm pretty amped up for the season, man. I'm going to be down there September 3rd. I don't really get to venture out much because it's uh, over a 400 mile drive. So uh, this one is going to be exciting and it's going to be a fun game. So I'm pretty pumped. Likewise, yeah, the season's right around the corner. Um, exciting now that we know that we're going to have a top 10 opponent opening up in week one, which I don't think that's happened probably in any of our lifetimes at the University of Florida. So that is a, it's a pretty unique experience and game that's ahead of us. Did not think about that. That's the first time we have a top 10 opening opponent. Michigan was top 15 in that dreadful game in Dallas, but mm-hmm. top 10, I I can't recall. Um, when at home too, at home. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. probably, I mean, the only one that comes to mind is like Houston. I think it was like 69. Uh, it was like that game with Carlos Alvarez, um, which we actually won that game. But I, I, Oklahoma I can't think of another State, one. Maybe. No, no, no. They were not top 10. I mean, we haven't played too many big time powers to begin seasons anyway. I mean, 2020 we did because everyone did, but that was a road game. I can't. Yeah, it's definitely uh, if it did happen, it was before any of us were born and in all likelihood before any of our parents were born. So certainly something to be excited for and, and, and look forward to. So guys, um, we did our, our typical introductory segment with Chris and we introduced him on our, our two shows ago, I guess, but uh, David and Zach um, are our guests. So we like to start out our interviews with guests with a segment called the lightning round to let everybody get to know y'all a bit better. Zach, it's going to be a little different for you. I know you have, um, I, I know you didn't grow up a Gator fan. So I will ask you the first question in a different fashion than I asked David, and then we'll go uh, back and forth from there. So the first question for you is, how did you get into the reporting game and, and why did you want to cover the Gators? So it's a, uh, it's kind of a, it was kind of by luck. Um, also kind of an embarrassing story to rehash. I, um, I, I always knew I wanted to get into sports writing. As soon as I stopped playing football, I wanted to stick around the game and I was covering the Jacksonville Jaguars. Very exciting, always lively brand of football up there in Duval County. Um, and I was dating someone around when I was 20 years old and I was waiting to kind of make a move, uh, just to get up into the next level. And she was going to come down here and start college at UF. And I figured, okay, I'll just follow you and see what I can do. Uh, I got a gig with Corey Bender over at rivals, which lasted a little bit. And then SI called me, they actually offered me their Jaguars gig. The issue was I had signed my lease in Gainesville two days before that. So I told them, hey, you know, I just can't. But if you have a Florida uh, opening, I'd be willing to hear it out. They said they did. And I didn't even really need to hear it out. It all just kind of came together uh, pretty well. It's it's obviously turned into a really, really enjoyable job. I'm glad that it worked out. I will say the embarrassing part is I am no longer with that girl. But uh, I do have to thank her. Uh, Without her, I don't really know if I'd be in this position. She introduced you to a brand that you are... 
I don't want to say married to because no one's ever really married to the team that they cover. I mean, very few people cover the same team or program or franchise forever, but you definitely have a, a certain relationship with the Florida Gators. Um, so yeah, you do have to thank her for that. Um, so if I don't, you don't mind, mind asking what team, what college team did you grow up a fan of? I really didn't grow up a passionate fan of college football too much as a whole. I, I was a big NFL guy um, with, you know, growing up watching a miserable team like the Jags, but I did love to watch college at the end of every year because I was so into the draft <laughs> because Jacksonville was always drafting top five and they obviously had a, their fair share of Gators that they've taken with top picks. But when I was really starting to get into covering the Jags like that was around the Blake Bortles draft year. And I was a big Blake Bortles fan. And by nature, I kind of became, and I know everyone's going to hate me for this, a UCF fan. Now I have distanced myself. I know I had no loyalty there. I was just riding the hype of being a Jags fan who took UCF's quarterback. Um, but yeah, I guess that's probably got to be my answer. It's that, or I guess, because I was born in Pittsburgh and they were playing great basketball when I lived up there. So I guess I could say Pittsburgh, but I haven't watched a Pittsburgh game willingly in a long time. So fair enough. Um, <laughs> you are, when you refer to that school in Orlando on this podcast, you're required to call them central Florida because that Noted. irritates them to no end. Um, so yeah, that's awesome. Um, that's, you know, we, we have our, our reporter perspective, the unbiased, I mean, we're all going to do our best to be unbiased. That is the motto of the pod. Keep it respectful, but keep it real. But we have someone who naturally is unbiased and Zach, uh, David, I know it's a little different for you because I know you're a Gator fan. So, uh, tell us how you became a Gator fan. Uh, it kind of started here when I was young. Uh, we grew up in a family full of Florida State, Miami, Florida. It was all mixed in our family. Uh, a bunch of our relatives are all from different parts of the uh, cities of Florida. And when I was little, I, I don't know, I was kind of attracted to the colors. I like the orange and blue. You're, you're, you kind of relate to colors when you're a kid and when you're little. So naturally, I was just kind of a Florida Gator fan. And, uh, you know, having Steve Spurrier watching him growing up and winning that national championship there in 96, it was uh it, it was really cool to see that that rematch against Florida State and how we just blew them out. And uh, it, it kind of made me even more of a Florida Gator fan then. So ever since then, I've kind of, I've kind of rode on that Florida Gator train. And, you know, it's really cool to text your relatives every now and then when something bad happens to Florida State or Miami or something like that. And we just trash talk back and forth to each other. But it's really cool to get the family together, especially, you know, we don't get to see each other that much with family get togethers, but we text each other and stuff like that. So yeah, it, it was kind of, kind of how I became a Florida Gator fan. And I've just ridden the train ever since, man. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of fans probably jumped on that train in 06, maybe 08, but Hey, if you've ridden that train from 08, all the way to 2022, I can't really call you a bandwagon fan anymore. <laughs> No, we've endured uh, too much stormy weather since then to to play that card. So, um, I mean, yeah, you and you and Chris and I are are the are the three of a kind in that we were, you know, Gator fans from a young age. Um, Zach, obviously, providing a little bit different of a perspective, but I think one thing that we can all agree upon is, as David, you just touched on um, in our in our second and and last little lightning round question before we get to the crux of the episode is we all like how things look. We go, Ooh, shiny. Oh, pretty. And we know recruits do. 
So I'm going to ask you the same question that we ask former players, recruits, uh, current players, and everyone. Yeah, everyone that we have on the show. Uh, what is your favorite Gator color combo? Ooh, Helmets, cool. jerseys, pants, all of them. Well, if I pick the actual uniform that they wore in 2017 against Texas A&M, everybody's going to murder me. <laughs> um, I'm not picking that because, unfortunately, my wife likes to schedule weddings on uh, on you know college football seasons. That was my wedding day, actually, too. So that's kind of a rough one. But if you were to ask me, ah, I kind of. I, I would say I like the white uniforms for some reason. And, and, and I know that a lot of people don't like the white helmet curse, but, or as they call it, but I, I just when they take those white helmets out with the fast F on them, I love it, man. It, it, it's just something you don't see a lot. It's very rare. And it's a really cool looking uniform combination. And I know the last time we, we wore that uniform combination, it did, I don't think it even went well for us, but uh, that's what I like though. That, I, I like that all white Fast F on the helmet, man. Give me, give that to me all day. Let me see the grass stains. Let me see all of that. So what about when Florida's at home and has to wear a color jersey? I would say probably, I would say probably the original. I, I, I don't really like the orange too much. I like the blue better. So I would probably go with the, the blue uniform with the orange helmet. Classic. Okay. Zach? I... Feel bad because I'm going to give the same answer as David actually, and it goes to my Jaguars roots because I am so disappointed by their current white kits and how there's no teal in it whatsoever. What I'll give Florida credit for with the all whites is I think they've done a perfect job of getting the orange and the blue sprinkled in throughout that kit, and, and I really like the white helmets with the F as well. But I think that you can pull off white, white, orange very well as well, and I think that you can just get creative with it. Uh, same deal when you're at home, I'd probably go uh, orange helmet, blue and white pants. Um, and I know fans are very split on this, but because of what they've done with the white uniform and done a great job of sprinkling in the blue and the orange, I'm very excited to see what the black looks like. We've seen these mock-ups that some fans have done. There's that popular edit of Marco Wilson that goes around Twitter. I think that looks really sharp. I'm, I'm excited to see it when they debut it. As someone that uh, was very anti all black uniform for like when the conception of the idea, it has started to grow on me a little bit. Uh, you know, we recently have seen the photos come out of practice of the quarterbacks and the non-contact jerseys with the orange helmet. It actually looks kind of good. I'm not going to lie. Like I, I think I could. And then what Coach Napier, I said how they're going to, you know, make it a thing for, I think, on Veterans Day. Uh, week and they'll donate the proceeds to uh, you know like a veterans group or something like that they did that at louisiana i think you know all it, it kind of satisfies both sides there a little bit like the folks that want to see the all black uniform and you know maybe it's something that go for a cause for the folks that maybe weren't for it before like it, i think it's a perfect combination so i'm kind of excited as well now i'll agree with you on that and that i was i mean i still don't love the idea only because I mean, my thing is Florida's colors are orange and blue, so I don't really like the black idea for the same reason I don't like any of white helmets because those are not gator colors. And I mean, I understand white pants for some kind of color balance. You're not just blinding people with too many colors, but I mean, orange and blue are in your palette. They, they are your colors. They are what distinguishes you. So you should wear them to whatever extent possible to display your brand and leave no doubt when someone turned on the TV for three seconds who they're watching play. But I agree with you that the black jerseys are definitely growing on me. There's a very good reason behind them. 
and I look forward to seeing what they look like in actuality. So guys, with that said, um, enough small talk, enough with the icebreakers. Let's, uh, let's get into it. So, I mean, right now, Florida is a program that I would say definitely is at a crossroads in that they have not too distantly been successful. And the talk, you know, David talked about the 96 title, the 06 and the 08 titles all within my lifetime. I can very, very, very vaguely remember the 96 one. I could much more clearly remember 06 and 08. But since then, a lot of ups and a lot of downs a program that has not been consistent to say the least. They have a new coach now, obviously, as we all know, and Billy Napier that has a bit of a different attitude than fans may be used to, especially in the last four years with Dan Mullen and his noted attitude of just being kind of brash and cocky and and brusque, I guess. Um, So the first question of the state of the program address has to revolve around him and, and what we think of him. I mean, obviously he hasn't coached a game yet, so we don't have any clear decisive opinions to form on him because he's zero and zero, but he's been here for most of an off season. Now he's gotten a, a transition class under his belt, which he did well in with Kamari Wilson and Devin Moore. He's gotten most of his bump class, he's gotten 16 of the 25 guys, or I guess they can take 32 this year, but he's gotten a, a good portion of his bump class in already. And he's done a lot of things off the field too, that have, have taken the country by storm. So uh, Zach, you are going to go first here is you are the, the most unbiased or the least biased of us all. Um, what do you, with what you know now, what do you think of the hire and what do you think that fans should be grateful for and maybe rightfully upset about, if anything? I shouldn't say upset, but maybe disappointed about. I think you hit the nail on the head with the idea that he's come in with a different attitude. To me, as a media member, it's been extremely refreshing because I feel like he actually kind of cares about us compared to uh, the last guy. Um, when you look at what he's done, for the team, obviously on and off. And again, without coaching a game, can you point to anything he's done wrong besides the sunglasses emoji about AJ Harris, which was a learning curve moment for a first time SEC coach learning how to recruit. It was going to happen something to that extent. Beyond that, I I can't think of a single thing he's done wrong this off season. He's come in with a very clear and concise yet adaptable plan to fix the program, you know, on the field, on the recruiting trail, the whole nine yards. And that was something Dan Mullen was never willing to do. He, he very simply thought he could out scheme you when he lost a game. He still was saying he wasn't getting out coached. You know, there was that arrogance, that brashness to it in Napier's attitude and plan to fix every corner of the program. And it extends to the speed trainers and strength coaches multiple grad assistants for every position. It's every little thing that needs to be done to make sure attention to detail is there. He's doing. And part of it, and I think fans get disappointed with this when I go and talk about what I think Florida is going to do year one. I think my predictions for the team are relatively underwhelming, but it's because Napier is telling us that without directly saying, yeah, you know, this is not a good team. Since the moment he stepped in front of a mic with Florida media there, 
he's tried to tell everyone, you know, we got to temper expectations. I'm walking into a pretty not ideal situation here. And I've got a lot of things I need to fix by year two or so, you know, I'm hoping that this thing is turned around, but we have to get this roster back into shape. And, and he said it about the first team in the depth all off season long at every position. And again, Florida fans have the expectation to win. They have the expectation a lot of the time to win immediately. And it's rightful because of the history and tradition of this program. But if you really contextualize what type of shape this roster was left in, the culture, which was just, in my opinion, decimated by the end of Dan Mullen's tenure, a, a lot of players that are even there now just were not happy whatsoever. Um, there was so much work on and off the field that needed to be done that it was never going to be an overnight thing. So when you talk about fans potentially being disappointed by something, it's probably just the words coming out of Napier's mouth that he doesn't think they're an SEC championship caliber team, an SEC East winning team. But again, you, you can point to recruiting 14, four stars in the summer. Like Dan Mullen wasn't doing that in a full class. He wasn't coming close to it. it, it the, Attention to detail, the discipline down to the socks, as we've learned in these past couple of weeks, this wasn't anything like Dan Mullen was doing. And we were, you know, we all obviously kind of bought into what Dan was doing because he did come in and win games immediately. He had that 2020 run, but with the slow and honest approach, I'm inclined to believe that you'll find more success that way. It may not always be pretty. He may not be completely up to the task because we need to see what this team looks like when they are on the field. But everything that's been done up until this point, I think, has gone as he's planned and, and as needed to make sure the culture got back to where it needed to be. Someone else want to take it? I mean, that's I mean that, that that's pretty good. It pretty much encompasses everything i mean the, the one thing i will say uh if, if, if we're gonna nitpick you know has he done a single thing wrong i mean yeah he, he's had some misses on the trail yes he has 14 four stars but i mean ideally you would have liked to have seen uh, maybe two or three of Derek leblanc john walker Jaden rashada malik bryant jonelle aguero lucas simmons um even even harold perkins if you want to go back to last year so i certainly am not complaining about the way he's recruited. I would just send to say that that may be a grade we give him um, of, of an A minus as opposed to, you know, perfect score. But for certain, it's it's not been something to whine about. Yeah, I, I totally get what you mean by that. And, and that's a good point. I think it's it's something that will come with time to the same point that he's made about it. You know, I'm not really expecting these five stars or even all of these in-state kids that are getting courted by these out-of-state powerhouses, which over the past decade is more common than them ending up at Florida. Um, so it's almost something that I don't even necessarily want to pin on him because we've seen the fruits of the new recruiting strategy begin to pay off. And yes, you know, the five stars, the in-state guys like a Derek LeBlanc or a John Walker, Malik Bryan, et cetera, you want to see them land them to get them over the hump. But then again, the bump class also isn't done. I'm not ruling out necessarily that maybe some of these guys pledged elsewhere end up flipping back if they win some big games this year and are able to sell positionally, especially what development looks like at Florida. Um, so we might be able to circle back to what I'm saying and freezing cold take it with the idea that he's not done much wrong. I think it's just more so 
it like, again, it's going to take time for everything to come together. So I don't want to necessarily call it a negative at the same time. I wouldn't you know, call that a positive that he's missed on those guys. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. Zach, I think those are all good points. You know, I think the, the big thing um, that stuck out for me is that he has done the things that he can't control right now. You know, he, one of the big things he did early on in his tenure that impressed me was the getting the buy-in of the current players because he knows that's going to lay the foundation for the future of the program. You know, so things like uh, improving the food, um, making sure that these guys weren't getting parking tickets and having to go fight, uh, you know, UF parking down the street from the stadium instead of actually being in the film room or in the locker room getting treatment and getting ready for practice. Um, you know, make, improving their housing situation. Um, those little things, you know, making sure that those are things he could do now. He can control those things now and that they can get buy-in and lay the foundation for the future of the program. Uh, it, as far as recruiting goes, you know, I think he started laying the groundwork from day one, bringing in his army, hiring over 50 off-field staffers. Uh, it takes time sometimes in the recruiting world to see the fruits of that labor, especially when it's a staff that hadn't really been recruiting in the SEC recently coupled with the fact that the recruiting landscape is changing uh, beneath, you know, the ground is changing beneath us right now with NIL and, and other factors in college football that are happening. So I think that they've done, he's done a fantastic job in mitigating some of that. And already we're seeing him, like you mentioned, 14, four stars. If you look at Dan Mullen's classes, he, the most he ever had in one was 17, four stars. So he's probably on track to maybe even get the same amount of four stars in his recruiting class before this football season's even started, depending on how things go in the next few weeks. So I, I'm impressed with just the way he's he's not he's not listened to the outside noise because we know that they hear it, they see it, but he's ignored it and he's continued on with his plan. And I think he no matter what happens this season on the field as far as results go, he knows his plan worked uh, at a smaller school like University of Louisiana, and by years two, three, and four. He saw the fruits of that labor, and I think he's going to do the same here at the University of Florida, regardless if, if we win, if we exceed expectations and win nine, 10 games this year, or if we're on the lower end of that. So, you know, I think he has done what he can to the best of his ability thus far. And for that, it, it's going to pay dividends later. Yeah, let me add to that, too. As, I, as I've talked to, I've had about 10 interviews with some players. Um, another thing that I, I noticed that he's improved is you hear a lot of players saying, well, we didn't get many reps last year. It was a lot of the second string, third string, fourth string guys weren't getting any reps. Now he's split them into you know two groups. Everybody's getting reps. And you're starting to see the kids buy in, as you guys talked about. And, you know, I think, you know, Napier, he has that it's like the slow methodical kind of uh, I, I can't even think of the word to say but he's just I, it's gonna take him time it, it, you know if you go back and you look at some of the things that he did at louisiana he had the fifth ranked recruiting class when he came in then he moves it up to the second then you have two number one recruiting classes as far as you know his record you know go seven and seven the first year then the next year 11 and three next year um, you know, loses one game there, loses another game, wins a bowl game. Uh, and, you know, he, they gradually, the winning percentage at Louisiana at Lafayette got gradually better as it, the season went on. You didn't really see any kind of spikes where he had like a nine win season, then a 10, then a three, then a four. It didn't go, it, it went gradually better as the season went on. So I think that with Florida fans, um, the recruiting is better. I mean, right now he has a player average of 91 point, I think 1.7, somewhere in there. 
Dan Mullen never even touched 91 when he was here at the University of Florida. So the recruiting is better, but I think Florida fans are going to have to be a little bit more patient. I think Napier's kind of starting to learn the ropes, as you said, with the A.J. Harris thing. He's starting to you know get his feet wet in the SEC. So even if the season doesn't translate into something that we want to see or the recruiting class may not be top 10 or it may be on the cusp of the top 10, I think you need to kind of sit there and be patient because if history goes like it does, Billy Napier could be more successful as the years go on. So I just wanted to kind of add that one in there. So for sure, that's and that's definitely a great point. And I, and I wanted to add on um, to the point that, that Chris made and then you you bolstered. I say this taking a deep sigh for a reason because I, I know people are going to listen to this and roll their eyes at it. Dan Mullen was not a horrible recruiter. He just wasn't good. He was okay. I mean, he he got back-to-back top 10 classes. That's not something a terrible recruiter can do. He was okay. He was, you know, kind of like how Mike White was as with everything. He was not great, not terrible. He was just, you know, passable. And he used strengths in other areas to help compensate for that. But Billy Napier is undoubtedly better. And by so much that it's not even an apples to apples comparison. I think I'm very happy with what Napier has done. I was just kind of restating my point from earlier about how, though I think Napier has done well on on the recruiting trail, he could theoretically have done a little bit better of a job so far. I mean, we're basically halfway through the cycle. We're going to call February the end of it, because technically it is. And and the job he's done in the first half of his first full cycle at a big-time school is very promising, but also not quite as good as it possibly could be basically it's almost kind of like a freshman in college getting an a minus on his first midterm exam like getting a 91 on his first midterm exam could he have done a better job well sure because a 91 by definition means that you missed on nine percent of the points you could have possibly gotten and missing on any more than zero percent of the possible points means you could have done better but to be realistic that's just a super nitpicky approach to that. And for all intents and purposes, both in the 91 on your first college midterm analogy and the reality of the job that Napier has done on the trail so far, it's crazy to be legitimately upset about what he's done. Yes, there were misses, but there were enough hits along the way, These, especially these past six weeks or so. There were enough successes so far to think that he can be extremely successful on the trail if he then goes out on the field and has his team produce the results that the University of Florida expects to produce. And that's actually what I think we should get into next because recruiting is all well and good, and it's obviously a very important component of this job, as Dan Mullen rudely found out. But coaches are ultimately judged by how their teams do on the field. So we'll get into the wins and losses in a little bit, but I wanted to start by backing up and just just talking process, because if you have the right process, if you have the right blueprint in place, eventually the wins and the titles, I believe, will come. So, Zach, let's start with you um, and let's start specifically in terms of fluidity and cohesion. What are you looking to see in 2022 from this Florida Gator football team? Disciplined is my word, uh, because that's what they've gone for so much. And 
again, I think that my win loss predictions have been underwhelming to the fan base at this point. And it still very may well be, sorry, I've got an alarm going off here. It may very well be what they end up doing. If they win six or seven games, fans aren't going to love it. But we should be paying attention to the context of that. Are they disciplined? Are the penalties that plagued Dan Mullen's teams, not just last year, not just the 2020 year, but all four years of his campaign, uh, campaign here in Gainesville, are those going to be cut down? Are you going to see buy-in and fight from first whistle to final whistle? Are you going to see one score games? I think that is probably the biggest barometer uh, for this entire season. Even if they do lose five or six games, they go head to head with Utah top 10 team returning what 75 ish plus percent of their starters. They lose that game by one score, especially in the swamp. And now granted it will be at night, which will help Utah a little bit more than if it were a day game. Let's say they lose that game by three or four points. Is anyone really that disappointed if they're like thinking a little critically there about the first game of this tenure, understanding everything that happened before it? They go into Kyle Field and they lose by a touchdown or less against Texas A&M, who just had the greatest recruiting class ever. Is anyone disappointed with that context in mind? I don't necessarily think so. And especially from my time covering the NFL, and granted, there's much more turnover in college football on a year-to-year basis. But one-score games are such a good indicator of what could be to come. And if you're putting up a lot of one-score losses against quality, quality opponents like Florida's got all over this schedule this year, my opinion is those games next year are going to turn into wins. If Florida's losing by one score to Texas A&M this year and they were hypothetically to play Texas A&M next year in the second year of Billy Napier's tenure, I would go ahead and say now I think Florida would win that game. And I think, you know, you can apply that to a lot of teams, maybe besides Georgia, just because we've seen what Georgia is right now. But that, to me, will be more telling than if they were to come in and win eight or nine games, because it's a I just don't necessarily think that's what's going to happen. But also we saw that with Mullen to where he came in and maybe this is biased towards that because that was the first coach I covered full time. We came in and saw he kind of exceeded expectations out the gate led to very high expectations year after year, and the crash was the crash. I would almost rather see a 6-6 six and six or 7-5, and five, but understand that from week one through the very end, first whistle to final whistle, they are competitive every snap of the way. That makes me feel so much better going into year two than if they were to come in and win a bunch of games and then have some turnover. Like If they win a ton of games this year and Anthony leaves next year, bearing a, a, a quarterback coming through the portal, I start to have my concerns, you know, it's so fickle almost, but that's, that's ultimately how I think I'm going to judge it. Yeah. I'm kind of the same way. And if you look at some of the games from last year, I believe you, you, you miss a one score game against Alabama. You miss a one score game against Kentucky. You know, you miss a one score game against Missouri. I want to see Florida pull out these one score games this year. Uh, You know, I know Zach alluded to, you know, the one score games if you have a one score game against utah cool fine seventh ranked team in the nation or eighth in some in some categories it, that's fine that's a top 10 team you took them to the, the to the limit and then you lost that's cool but i want to see you know you beat that missouri by one score don't have some really big cough ups again because against kentucky and then lose that game 
I want to see something like that. I want to see more discipline played. Also, turnover margin was really terrible with this team last year. I believe they were 118th in turnover margin per game. And, you know, Patrick Toady, he stresses that. I want to see more turnovers. There's going to be more discipline play here. Bateman talking about less penalties. I want to see the little things improve. I also want to see some kind of wide receiver breakout besides Justin Shorter because you don't really know what you're going to get with these wide receivers. Justin Shorter returns. You didn't really get to see him break out as well. I kind of want to see a little bit of improvement from some of these young guys as well. And I also would like to see the best players playing in the game and not the senior players playing in the game. And obviously with this staff, that's not going to happen. Yeah, no, I think, you know, these guys really hit it on the head. It, it's discipline. It's it's style of play and how we look. You, know, you go back to those games last year. It, it was the little things that cost us. Miss extra point versus Alabama. Uh, maybe a bad handoff on the two-point conversion later in that game. You go to Kentucky, 15 penalties, procedural, that the, the staff is talking about eliminating. Just imagine if we had eliminated maybe two or three of those in, timely, in a timely fashion. You go to LSU, a couple of turnovers here or there. Uh, you go to Missouri, a one-score, a one-point loss. I mean, if you think about this team this year, if they're able to clean up the penalties, be more disciplined on defense, and maybe have that, you know, that playmaker actually playing the quarterback position like he's supposed to be in Anthony Richardson, you got to start to think that some of those games, even that we played on the road, that we're actually going to play this year at home, I'd like to think that those become wins and maybe we start to win those close games. Um, so, and I'm sure we'll get into kind of in a, more of an in-game analysis once we get to that point of the show. But I, I definitely think that if we can see the discipline improve, the penalties, um, just it, it overall energy on the sideline too. guys communicating, you know, guys communicating on the field, what the plays are, we didn't really see that a whole lot last year. And I think that's part of it was because they were kind of confused on what the direction from the coaching staff was. And we can rest assured from what we've seen thus far, that's not going to be the case. So I think if we see those things that we're, we've already been hearing from the coaches actually implemented into action on the field, like Zach said, even if we aren't, you know, getting to the win total that Florida fans expect, it's going to pay dividends in the future for the program. And you look at Billy Napier's first year, he only won seven games. But by year two, he won 10 and he played for a conference title. So you can already start to see, you know, looking forward that if we do these things now in year one, by years two and three, the system will be in place and, and things will get moving. But that is a good point that Zach did mention, you know, quarterback being the most important position, that, that, is, that is a mystery because I think everybody does believe Anthony is going to have a solid uh, a solid year and if 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 these mock draft projections projections are um anything to be believed uh, which they can be you know they can be shaky we've seen that in the past but if he plays up to the potential that we think he can then there's a possibility he may not be here next year for that for that run so um but nonetheless we we need to see improvement in those areas uh for the program to just move forward in general so i also yeah, want to add uh 132 missed tackles last year. Got to clean up missed tackles too. I did not. I did not realize it was 132. I got kicked off my PFF subscription. Jesus Christ! (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what I'm looking at right now. (laughs) Oh, I mean, I knew it was bad. And that goes back seasons. I mean, that that goes back. I'm sure if you went back to 2020 and 2019, I mean, that that was a problem. 
uh, with the defense and, and lost us some games that we shouldn't have lost, you know? 2020, 151. And David, you're you're not even taking into Zach has just like thrown his head back, laughing silently. But David, those <laughs> the best part about that stat is those don't even take into account the tackles that were not made because our guys took horrible angles or ran themselves completely out of the play, and they could have feasibly made the tackles if they'd done what they were supposed to do. But I mean, yeah, Todd Grantham's defenses the last couple of years were, I mean, the 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 respectful and polite way to say this was just so far below the standard that there was no real justification for bringing him back. Um, yeah. and, well, and a lot of, a lot of those missed tackles were in the secondary too. So they were getting past the, uh, the, yeah. the defensive line there. So <laughs> Grant, Grantham liked to call his defense a Ben don't break defense, but boy, it was it broken. Bro- it was broken. And then the <laughs> broken pieces were then picked up. And then those little pieces were broken too. <laughs> one, I mean, it, one, one quick thing I want to add to, um, and I just thought of this is that, I want to see if this, how this coaching staff's staff adapts when adversity strikes, because we know it's going to happen, whether it's injuries, whether it is a tough loss, like say we lose a game at home by one score. How do they adjust the next week? Do we see, does one loss turn into two, three losses like it did last year? Does, how does the team respond? Do they quit or do they keep going? Do they, and do they win the next game? Um, whenever there's a turnover, you know, if Anthony Richardson throws an interception or two, how does the defense respond and having their backs against the wall? You know, those are things that I think everybody kind of just threw their, you know, hands up in the air the last really even couple seasons. Whenever something bad happened, the team didn't respond in the right way. So I want to see how this coaching staff and this team responds when adversity strikes. And if, you know, something's wrong and they realize that, a strategy is not working or, a, you know, some, you know, the starting lineup needs to be adjusted. Do they actually adjust it? Because we all know that those, there were a lot of clamoring for adjustments from the fan base and a lot of different areas on the field, but we never saw it. And it was frustrating to see the same mistakes happen over and over and over again from the same areas and nothing was done about it. So how does the coaching staff respond when they realize they do need to fix something? Uh, and when adversity strikes, how the team responds? Well, I think that that Napier was hired in, in large part because Scott Strickland and the alumni who were somewhat responsible, I guess, assumed that he was going to do that because that was ultimately the his predecessor's downfall because he would not fire Todd Grantham. He would not replace um, Felipe Franks until he broke his ankle and or his, broke his leg. And I mean, Kyle Trask isn't even a thing if not for that. And then the same thing with Emory Jones and Anthony Richardson. Uh, And you could say the same thing about various personnel on both sides of the ball throughout his, especially his last couple of years. So to Chris's point, I do think it is reasonable and fair to expect that a coach who is hired specifically to be better than his predecessor in this particular area will be better than his predecessor in this particular area. Let me pick that up really quick from there. I, I also I, I don't want to see a a bend don't break defense like or a bend don't break team at the beginning of the year. Let's say first opponent Florida Atlantic gave up fourteen points. Second opponent gave up twenty. Play Alabama gave up thirty one with some turnovers that did help Alabama. He held Alabama to ten points. I think the second half of the game ran the ball down their throat. Wasn't able to pull it off because of the turnovers. Next game play Tennessee give up fourteen. Kentucky give up twenty. Uh, you know, Vanderbilt, you give up zero. But then after that, 49, 34, 40, 52, 24, 21. So Florida, 
you know, towards the end of the season, you saw the mentality of the uh, the team kind of break there, uh, starting to give up a lot of points. Uh, that that we know that dreaded Sanford game that we we thought Florida was <laughs> neck and neck for, and, and of course, you know, Dan Mullen said, "Well, every threw for seven hundred yards or had seven hundred yards of offense, yeah, because he had to." So we we, we want to see that mentality of you know, if the season starts going cahoots, say what these publications saying that okay, well, we'll be fifth in the SEC or fourth. What's the mentality of the whole team when when you when you bend? Are you gonna break? Are you just gonna bend and then come back into form? Well, and some of those that like that that's the funny thing. First of all, in defense of the defense, um, the LSU game, some of those points were not the defense's fault. There were pick sixes, there were interceptions thrown deep in, ter- in territory. Uh, South Carolina, there was a scoop and score. I think uh, Georgia, obviously the pick six, uh, the fumble at the ten yard line. But nonetheless, I mean, look at me defending Todd Grantham. <laughs> but I mean, there's there's no rational explanation for what happened repeatedly throughout the 2020 and 21 seasons. But I mean, yeah, the idea is you shouldn't have to bend, right? I mean, you should stand tall on the first play of the game, force a, a big sack. I mean, remember, I mean, I know David and, and Chris do as, as Gator fans, um, especially the 2012 game. We start off against South Carolina. There's a fumble because Luchas Purifoy just blows through the line and knocks the ball out. The crowd's going wild. First play of the game, you know, you got to come out and, and maybe make a statement, of whether it's a sack or just a big hit like spikes on Marino. That was the second play, but I mean, you, you have to have the let's just not bend mentality. Let, let's not concede that we're going to give up 40 yards and take a little bit of gas out of our tank here. Let's come out strong and make a statement to start the game. And I think Tony's going to do that. I really do. Yeah. To pick up further off of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I just don't see that with Patrick Tony or this staff. And if you're not cutting the mustard, I mean, <laughs> these people are going to sit you on the bench. They're not going to let you throw shoes <laughs> and cost people a game. So, I mean, it, it's going to be different, but it's going to be different for the better. It just depends on how much this defense, you know, first of all, there's the buy-in there. You already know what's there, but how much this defense and offense, you know, mentally you can, can get through those tough situations. I think you're going to see a lot more discipline as they they've coached and, you know, they say the word propinquity, which is, you know, team togetherness, you know, knowing each other's names, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think it's going to be better from a mental standpoint and Billy Napier and staff are not going to accept people with their heads down and, and, and all of that, that, that you're not going to see that next year. It's like Zach referred to, even if they are losing games, say they just have a really bad game. Do you see them still coming out playing discipline? Do you see them with their hands on their hips? Do they, are they out of position? Do they draw a flag for, you know, a false start? Something like that. So going back and piggybacking off of that, I just, you're just not going to see that with this staff, I don't think. The team takes on the character of their head coach. You know, we, and that, if you look at, you think back to the last couple of seasons, that's the case. When in 2020, when the shoe throw game happened, based on the behavior of the head coach that was allowed that was okay you know from what everything we've seen from billy napier thus far of course he hasn't coached a game yet but what we saw for him at louisiana what the fans from there told us about him that's not acceptable and that won't be acceptable so i I think we're i think we're to kind of maybe wrap this topic up i think that billy napier is going to have this team at the very least disciplined and playing better football than what we've seen in recent years and we'll ultimately see how that reflects in the win total um, kind of shifting gears a little bit, though, thinking about this upcoming season and maybe getting a little more uh, in depth on the players. Looking at the offense, and then we'll look at the defensive side of the ball. Who are your breakout players 
Um, and on the offensive side of the ball, let's start with maybe the not low-hanging fruit of Anthony Richardson, because I think everybody kind of sees him as the breakout, maybe offensive MVP. Who's somebody else maybe on the offensive side and then the defensive side of the ball you're looking at as a breakout player? I've got a, a couple in mind, obviously not as strongly opinionated in favor of uh, compared to Anthony Richardson, but uh, there's a couple and, and some of them have more hype than others. You know, Montrell Johnson, there is a lot of hype there and it is all very you know reasonable because he has experience in this exact scheme as a freshman rushing for 12 touchdowns. Like you don't see that in the SEC very often. He, he very clearly played above his competition in the Sun Belt. And I think for what this offense wants to do, there is a lot more power, power oriented rushing compared to zone schemes. Montreal is a fantastic fit. And, and I'm very curious to see what this rotation looks like at running back, because there's a lot of hype for Lorenzo Lingard. A lot of people want to see how Naquan looks when he comes back, because he may be the most complete back of the group when it's all said and done. Trevor Etienne, when I watch him in practice, is one of the most excitable backs that they've got. Been really impressed by what I've seen from him, obviously, in limited showings, but I've also, you know, talked to people around the program that get to see more practice than us who are backing it up, saying it's continuing into team periods. And with the way this offense is going to operate, you know, the running game is going to have to be a strong suit at all times, and they're going to want to have numerous guys getting I mean, what it's it's easy to forget exactly what the numbers look like, but what 200 to 900-plus yard rushers and an 800-plus yard rusher in the scheme last year? Who's to say that won't happen with SEC caliber backs and offensive line play? Um, so you could really pick anyone from the running back group with that in mind. Offensive line, a cop-out answer is Osiris Torrance, just because for a breakout for him is playing SEC competition on a weekly basis. We know that he is very proven like Johnson at the Sun Belt level, never allowing a sack in his career. So if I'm going to go away from him, I would probably say Ethan White. And he's been a dependable starter when he's been able to play. The issue is that he, he's had injury issues throughout his career. He's done a little bit of movement across the line, but I think he's really settled into that left guard spot. He's in between two veterans who don't have many injury issues, except for Garage had something a little bit at the end of last year and in camp this year. But for the most part, he's got experienced guys around him. He's in a power scheme that I know he was always supposed to thrive in. When he was coming out of high school, he looked like, granted, he was a project, but he looked like a power type of guard based off of the strengths of his game. I think that this is going to be a better fit for him than he's ever had while he's been at Florida. So he's another one. And I guess I'm going position by position. Ricky Parasol is a, is a cop-out answer because everyone's excited that he brings something different to the unit, in which case I'm going to go with Jaquavion Frazier's. I think that we've seen very small flashes from him, and it goes to the point of playing seniors over younger guys. So we haven't been able to see him do that much. But from what I've heard throughout camp, it's that he's been a standout. Even though he's a bigger-bodied receiver, he, he apparently creates better separation than most of the other bigger-bodied receivers which again is, is the biggest thing this receiving group has needed is guys that can create separation, do things after the catch, not just go up and catch the ball at the sideline. Like Justin Shorter has been able to do Trayvon Grimes did so well, you know, they've not really had anyone come in like KT or, or Van Jefferson 
since those guys. And, and one of them was a transfer portal addition and one was a Jim McElwain recruit. So there's going to be a lot of variance to it. And with that, even guys that might fit what the last staff was looking for could really fit better into what this offense is going to look like moving forward. Sorry, I know I just basically no, 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 no. That was offense. good. You, you kind of, <laughs> you, you set the bar high. Um, going position by position, I guess. Not guess too much. To, <laughs> I guess we all have to match take, it now. Take some of my guys. I know I said everyone, but uh, yeah, you, you took a lot of guys, but that's because, in fairness, there are a lot of guys that I think are are reasonable to, you know, to to sort of eyeball and expect big things out of. Anyway, at running back, it's it's especially hard to say. They all have a different case for being that that guy that I pick. Naquan Wright has the experience of Florida, 130 carries with the Gators the last two seasons for 539 yards. He's got some nice wiggle to him. He's also got some experience catching the ball out of the backfield, which I think bodes pretty well for him in this offense. Montreal Johnson has the experience playing for Billy Napier as the Sun Belt freshman of the year last year. Lorenzo Lingard is the five-star talent that we took away from Miami out of the transfer portal with just absolutely ridiculous natural abilities. Um, I am high on Trevor Etienne, but I think he's going to have to wait his turn for a year or two. So maybe table him for uh, 2023 or even 2024 state of the program address pod receiver. I would have said Ricky Pearsall before his injury. As of this recording, we don't know the extent of it. The, the injury just happened. I mean, the news of it is just breaking as we're recording this. So we don't know anything more about that. So we'll just leave that there. But since I can't pick him, I'm going to say Justin Shorter, another five-star portal edition a couple of years ago. I, I don't know if you can say that Florida has a true proven number one wide receiver, but Justin Shorter would definitely be the closest thing to it. I mean, incredible athletic abilities. We've seen him flash that at times for Florida over the last couple of seasons, such as, I mean, most the one we all know is against Arkansas in 2020, where he goes up, he navigates the sideline, climbs the ladder, full extension, grabs the ball, somehow gets two feet inbounds and an elbow inbounds. Um, can he be the guy that does that? consistently can he be the guy that is able to survive against double coverages and can he get himself open against opposing cb1s as opposed to you know finding some holes because he's not the the featured guy and the team that's got you know, trayvon grimes kyle pitts Kadarius tony or so um and even last year the, the defenses were keying in a little bit more on copeland it felt like so, and, and Kamori Gamble at, at tight end. So can he be the guy at wide receiver one that knows he's going to get the best that the defense has to offer and still produce for the Gators? Offensive line, we had Ethan White on our pod earlier this week, and he's just got this quiet energy that I absolutely love. I mean, he's been snake bitten by injuries before, and I, I think that that's just made him so hungry and driven and yes, there's obviously a lot of technique that goes into being a lineman. You know, you got to place your hands in the right spot, got to have quick feet. Uh, but I think that the natural drive he has is going to give him just a little bit more oomph when he jumps out of his stance and he delivers those initial strikes to the defensive lineman. So I definitely think that natural strength plus natural quickness of his feet plus the natural drive and, and motivation he now has is going to make him someone to definitely watch for. At tight end, I like Nick Elksness a lot later on down the road to produce, but 
for right now, I got to say Keon Zipper. I mean, he's the obvious answer, and I'm going to go with him because I think he can be a tremendous asset in the passing game as opposed to just a guy who can line up a tight end and catch some passes here and there. And, I mean, honestly, I could say something kind of similar about Osiris Torrance in that he's pretty much sharpied in to somewhere on the offensive line. I mean, he's looking more like a guard now, but he played a lot of tackle at Louisiana, versatile enough to play both. And looking at him as a tackle, because that's where he he played before, in terms of the combination of strength and, and quick feet and technique and just the all-around overall package, I don't know that Florida's had such an NFL-ready offensive lineman maybe since DJ Humphreys? I don't know. I don't know. What do you what do you guys think on that? Has Florida had a more NFL ready offensive lineman than DJ Humphreys since DJ Humphreys? Not off the top of my head. Yeah, not off the top of my head either. I mean, Juwan Taylor was, I think, a second round pick or oh, an early second round pick in Jacksonville. Um, and he but left he, school early. Yeah, and he took some development too, though, right? That was before I got here, but it was like that yeah. last year he really took off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think it was 26, 20, 2016. Or, no, I'm sorry. Maybe I get my years. 2018. He was a freshman in 2016. Uh, a yeah, 18, he had a very good season. Yeah, was, 2018. But I didn't I didn't think he was I, – I, I th- yeah, like you said, he still had some development to do. I thought he wasn't quite ready. I think Osiris Torrance is a guy that if he were to just skip his Florida career and go right to the pros, I think he could step in and, and play fairly quickly there. And Florida hasn't had that at tackle in, in years. Although he is, I guess, expected to play guard uh, more than he is tackled. But um, yeah, I mean, like Zach said, there's so many guys you can realistically point to and say, yeah, I'm expecting big things out of this guy because X. I'm expecting big things out of that guy because Y and so on and so forth. You can make good cases for so many different guys. So, uh, David, how about you? Yeah, I mean, you really can. I mean, when you look at some of these offensive weapons like Trent Whittemore, uh, Xavier Henderson, uh, Justin Shorter, I mean, they've had their moments where they've made big plays, where you've seen their talent come out. You know, I mean, I, I go back to that South Carolina game uh, in 2020, I think, where uh, you know Kyle Trask kind of overthrows his receiver in the South Carolina game, could have got picked. <laughs> Whittemore goes up, still gets the catch with his long arms, and I think that was one of his big flashier moments there. Uh, but if you're going to go offense, as I said, you can go down the list of any of these guys and say, well, the, you know, they've had flashes. And uh, I like some of these younger guys, man. But I, I will say at running back, it I, I it's not just because he was a former five-star transfer from Miami. I mean, I've talked to this kid. I've had a really good interview with him. Every now and then he'll send me a text and we'll send something to each other funny. Like he likes to go mudding on, on his off time and stuff like that. But I love Lorenzo Lingard, just his attitude, his overall you know, respect for the game, respect for the coaching staff, the ability to want to learn. Uh, combine that with talent, you know, not really playing that much, has a lot of time in the gym. Uh, you know, you see him pulling trucks out there on social media and all that. And I mean, he's got speed. And I think, you know, I, I, honestly, with Fenley Graham gone off the team, Demarcus Bowman transferred out. You look at this, you don't like to put a wide receiver back there to return kicks. I wouldn't expect Xavier Henderson to be doing that. I would love to see Lorenzo Lingard back there on special teams. And I know a lot of teams kick it out of bounds now and all that, but what about fielding punts? Like, who's going to do that? I think Lorenzo Lingard would be really perfect for that fit just based on his speed, 
and his ability to, uh, and even Naquan Wright, his ability to make people miss out there in the in this in the second you know secondary there. So I'm really curious to see what they do with special teams, and I think they might stick a running back there. Shoot, they may even put a, a young Trevor Etienne back there. Um, I, I don't really know. I haven't seen any much many notes from practice, but uh, I also want to give a shout out here to Jordan Young. I mean, this is a kid that you know I watched the spring game. He's flying all over the field. And he makes these vicious tackles, and he tackles the guy. He does not miss. I mean, he did not miss in that spring game. Uh, some of the practice notes that I've that I have seen, he, he's got a pick six, and it was from Anthony Richardson. And, and a lot, and that might freak people out, saying, "Oh, well, Anthony Richardson threw a pick six in practice." But you want to see both sides of the football doing very well. So I think Jordan Young, if he gets a chance to play, because you know. This is a you know a staff that doesn't play the senior players, plays the best guys out there. If he gets a chance to play, I think he might be a really good breakout player on this defense. But also, like you know, the obvious would be Jason Marshall out there, a corner. You know, he he's due for his his year here, and may, probably will be very taken very high in the draft. I mean, you just got so many guys that's uh, on the defensive line. You got Brenton Cox, Gervon Dexter, you know, Ventrell Miller, the backbone for this defensive line, especially in the run game. I mean, this guy can clog a hole like like anything. I'd love to see him get a little bit better in coverage. But if you had to ask me to pick a defensive guy, as I said, I would probably pick a Ventrell Miller. As a, for a young guy, I would pick Jordan Young. For the wide receivers, man, I, I think there's a lot of unknown talent here. I mean, as you said, you didn't really get to see a lot of playing time from these guys. But if you're not a Florida fan, you're probably thinking they don't have anybody at wide receiver. Well, no, I think we do. Uh, as Zach alluded to, Jaquavian Frazier's and, uh, you know, the guy behind him, probably even Marcus Burke, if he plays a little bit. We don't know that either. I mean, there's just so much talent at wide receiver in the slot. Ricky Perzel, I think. You know, the question marks that wide receiver is just based on the inexperience. I don't really think it's based on the skill level talent. So yeah, there's just so much talent here, but it's just, as you said, it's the experience factor. Uh, you know, what if somebody, you know, what if Anthony Richardson goes down? God, hope me, help me doesn't. But um, I think when you really look at this roster and you break it down, there's a lot of talent on here that, probably maybe inexperienced but can hang with some of the tougher teams in the sec so that's my opinion on defense offense you took the baton from all of us and went defense too i was i've been thinking about who i wanted to say for defense um but i think you hit the nail on the head when you said that uh jason marshall obviously in the secondary Ventral miller at linebacker garbon dexter in the front it feels like florida for all the quote unquote unknowns that the the experts like to say that Florida has, it feels like Florida has some pretty established leaders at all three levels of their defense, especially given the fact that, you know, it's a new defense. There's a new coaching regime. Everything just feels new fifth year senior and Miller obviously leading the way, but Marshall is a sophomore seemingly, you know, wise and experienced beyond his years. Dexter, I mean, made no shortage of references to how badly he wants to to be a leader on that defensive line this year cox coming in um in that little sort of hybrid role florida has a leadership that you could only hope for at every level of defense this year and i think that that's something that isn't really talked about quite enough yeah let me go to would uh when, when Dan Mullen first came to campus, right, uh, nobody really thought Florida had any talent. 2017, the way Jim McElwain recruited, correct? Dan Mullen gets in there, and new head coach puts a new energy into the team, right? This team 
goes to a New Year's Six Bowl game, blows out a Michigan team that maybe many people thought they had no business being on the field with. Who knows? But I think when you've got talented guys around and you install a new energy in them, you get them wanting to play the game of football again. Their hands aren't on their hips. You show them that, you know, you care for them outside of the field, on top of the, you know, out with, you know, on field as well. I think when you combine all of that and the energy to want to play the game of football and you instill a new confidence and you make these guys feel like they're wanted, they're going to want to die for that coach out there on that football field. So I'm not going to say it's going to be a 2017 to 2018 transition where the team completely wins way more games than we thought we were, but it's going to be a new team with a new energy. And there's so much talent on this team that I think it's going to be a lot better than what people think. Yeah, agreed. And I guess for my guys, uh, kind of breaking out, uh, pretty much hit almost everybody that I was thinking of. Um, defensively, though, I kind of like uh, Tariq Sapp. You know, he's a guy that made some huge plays in the spring game. And, I mean, he is just island. I mean, he, he just he does not miss tackles. He is a disruptor on the defensive line. We need guys to emerge from the defensive line. He's a guy that I, I do think makes an impact on this defense, um, as well as Princely Umanilin. Uh, I, I think he, you know, he's been showing flashes of greatness, and I, I like him to have a big year on the defensive side of the ball. I also think um, we can see a guy like Mari Wilson ultimately end up maybe cracking the starting lineup in the safety uh, room. You know, he's just a great athlete, and you know, the highest recruit that Billy Napier has gotten to date. So, I think he's going to make an impact in some way as a freshman. I agree on Jordan Young. I think this guy's going to get on the field. And, and make a difference, maybe in that uh, that nickel uh, role. But I do think he makes it uh, impact on defense. As far as offense goes, um, what about a guy like Mark Michael Tarquin? You know, this is a guy that probably should have been playing, maybe starting at times uh, last year. And I know Rob Sale was very complimentary of him during his press conference last week about who's a guy that we should be emulating and doing things uh, like was Michael Tarquin. And I think just that kind of when you do things the right way and you put yourself in a position to eventually succeed, great things are going to happen. And I think Michael Tarquin this year, it it looks like, you know, he might be the uh, the starting right tackle this year. So I think that that is a guy that I see emerging potentially on the offensive line outside of the other guys. Obviously, we've already talked about Um, offensive line really does excite me. I think this is probably the best offensive line we've had at the University of Florida in 10 years. I go back all the way to the 2012 team. That was a great offensive line that helped us run football very well. And I think the stars are aligning for us to be a very good running football team. We have a stable of running backs that we've mentioned. I think we're, you know, just going back and you look at Napier's history. I mean, he is not afraid uh, to share the rock with his running backs, but he does it the right way. Unlike, uh, you know, I think what we saw the last couple of years, he has found a way to manage that running back room in the past very well. And almost every single running back, if you look at it, they're getting anywhere between 700 and 1,000 yards rushing. And that's for the top three running backs on the team. So I think with the uh, you know guys emerging on the offensive line and the running backs that we've talked about, uh, we could see a huge year uh, in the running game, which will, be, which will be pivotal in opening up that passing game for those receivers who are going to need to make plays on the field. And I think when you have inexperienced receivers – you want to get them open. The best way to do that is to run to open the pass, which is something he's alluded to in the past. I was going to say the exact reverse take. Uh, we're talking about what what makes Florida's running backs sound like something that could be so good this year. 
Florida also has a quarterback that can throw the ball and get defenses to back off and quit loading the box with seven, eight, nine guys even. So that may be something that kind of works both ways. You use the run and set the pass up and use the passes at the run up and give Florida more of a balanced identity on offense that can get defenses maybe a little bit off balance at times. So we have a team this year that we know we, we know who the leaders are. Florida has guys that I think everyone is, whether we're going to, call him our breakout player or not, or the player to watch for or not. I think Florida has guys everywhere on the field at every position that are more or less expected to sort of shoulder um, the, the the bulk of the workload. But I want to talk a little bit more um, big picture. We talked about this a little bit early on, Zach. I mean, you mentioned you, you would almost rather, I mean, you're not a Gator fan, so I can't say rather or not rather, but you said it would almost be, uh, preferable if Florida would go, you know, six and six or seven and five this year, just so that the expectations don't immediately go through the roof as it happened with Dan Mullen. Um, but I wanted to get your insights specifically as the, the resident unbiased guy here, um, as to what exactly you think Florida fans can expect in, in 24, 25, 26, and so on uh, moving forward. So earlier I asked what you thought of the hire based on what we know now in mid-August of 2022. With that same sample of time, given the same data and insight that we have collected to this juncture, what do you think of the potential stability of the infrastructure and the blueprint that Billy Napier has laid down? Uh, I mean, in, in layman's terms, what do you think the future holds for Florida under Billy Napier? I think the, because especially with not having played a game yet, I think the only answer you can give is the progress we've seen in recruiting. It, the depth is the focus. As Napier has said from day one of spring camp, especially the roster is filled with a bunch of ones and twos that have no experience potential for sure but they just don't know what they have and they don't have threes. They don't have fours. That's why they're expanding the walk-on roster. As you guys mentioned, splitting the practices into two. That's why the walk-on roster is going to be over 50. So they can give these second and third teamers the reps they do deserve. But it all comes to the, uh, again, the progress we've seen on the trail to have 14 of your 16 commits as four stars at least nine more, you'd think they're going to hit 25 and probably go above that with the you know less restrictions on it at this point. The blue chip ratio is going to be immensely better than we've seen it at Florida dating back to before Mullen. I mean, it'll be better at this rate than McElwain. It'll probably be better. And Muschamp, I think, was a good recruiter, at least at the beginning of his career. It's probably going to be better than when Muschamp was here. And to the point that Napier's made with depth being the concern all along, you can point to saying 14 of your 16 commits are four stars and the rating is 91. And you immediately think that, yeah, right now the results might not be great, but you're getting the blue chip talent. You're securing the in-state talent for the most part, which as we all know is extremely critical. Florida football is just different. It's, I think that that's ultimately all you can do is you look towards that and you understand that, especially with the strategies they have in place to get their younger guys, their second teamers, their third teamers practicing at the level that their first team is doing. When you pair that with the horses, if someone said this to me right before Napier got hired, you got to find a coach that can go get you the horses and you're going to win. That's why Nick Saban in part is as good as 
he is because he can go and get the studs and work on development after that. But he lives and breathes recruiting. Kirby Smart's the same way. Very early on, we're seeing that same type of strategy from Napier. What will the results be? Obviously, we got to wait and see. But at player acquisition business, that's his term uh, that he's gone back and said a couple of times. He gets that. Mullen, yeah, you said he was not a terrible recruiter, and I agree. He was a lazy recruiter. We saw the differences between the couple of guys at the top of the class compared to the rest of it. We saw the takes to get the rating bumps only for several of those players to not end up qualifying at Florida. A lot of them coming from pretty unique situations and a lot of them coming from out of state. Um, Napier's not a lazy recruiter. Again, there's a plan in place here. He's focusing on the things he needs to focus on on the trail to get Florida's roster into the shape it needs to be. The development is to be determined. The results on the field is to be determined. But that's what wins in the SEC, man is getting the players, the right players, not only the talented ones, but the right ones, the cultural fits, the buy-in guys. And I don't think Mullen focused on any of those things. He focused on ranking because he was a guy that wanted to be known as, um, I guess maybe not wanted to be known, but he was egotistical, as you said, as it, brash. And, and he paid attention to that stuff. And he knew that if he went and got this random commitment that may not make it into the class, at least for a couple of months, he's going to look better. Napier doesn't have that mindset. And I think that's what fans, again, even if they go six and six, seven and five, maybe even eight and four, because I don't think, I think there'd be a small percentage of fans that don't love that either. Cause Florida fans just love, you know, again, they have every right to expect 10 wins out of this program year in and year out. But even with those results, with the dedication you see to building this roster, the way it is supposed to look like at Florida, that's what you hang your hat on. I wanted to pivot to David here because David, not that long ago, it seems like forever ago, but it wasn't that long ago. And, and David, you're going to have to remind me who this was you were speaking to. But there was a moment in time about a month and a half to two months ago where you were saying uh, it, it was it was about a week or so before Jaden Rashada was going to make his announcement. And you were saying something to the effect of, well, Napier really, really better get him because if he doesn't land Jaden Rashada, we're not going to get a quarterback, period. And it felt like at that time, right now, it, it, you know, that take hasn't really aged great. But at the time, you were absolutely correct. I mean, you, you nailed that on the head at the time of that statement. And we're just in a completely different world now. I mean, it is just completely tilted on its axis in a way that none of us could have predicted. And sure, that's college football. You know, that's college football recruiting, especially things are going to change. That's just the nature of the beast. But Napier to, I mean, the point that um, that that Zach sort of alluded to and the point that I've definitely not been shy about talking about is Napier has an infrastructure here that is going to take the possibility of failure into account. He's going to have backup plans. He's going to have plan Bs. He's going to have insurance in case something goes wrong. And so David, because you're the one who put that take out there, I'd like to get your, you know, what we know now edition of that take. 
Yeah, what I I remember being on the High Top Sports uh, YouTube show, what I remember saying that, and uh, I was like, Florida's in a bad spot because most of your top 15 quarterbacks are already committed, so either you're going to have to flip a guy, which they did do in Marcus Stokes there, so they, they got the job done there, or you're going to have to rely on a guy in the portal. So, I mean, Billy Napier got the job done. There wasn't no question that in my head that I thought Billy Napier wouldn't know that this was a concern and just not address it like a certain head coach from last year. But uh, like I said, you know, when you're in a, when you're in a bad spot, right. And you're a head coach, uh, you you know, you're supposed to go out and do things like that. So uh, Billy Napier, he flips Marcus Stokes from Penn state there. And this is a guy that, you know, he's ranked, you know, 385th nationally. I mean, he, he was a top 10 quarterback uh, before. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, sure, you get those other, you know, ri- rivals on three. They put their ratings in and it jumbles the composite there. But, I mean, he's ranked 154th nationally here on 24-7 sports. So a lot of uh, a lot of agencies think differently about him. I know, uh, Zach, I think you guys over there at SI, top, you had him in what, y'all's top 10, wasn't it? We, we didn't do positional rankings this year, and our overall is only 99, so I don't really have a number for it, but we all do like him. I would rank him a lot higher than where he's at consensusly right now because he's very raw, and I get why he's dropped a bit, but the reason people were intrigued by Jaden Rashada, Stokes has the same tools. He's just not anywhere near as developed or polished when it comes to it, but the tools are there. It's the same style of quarterback yeah yeah basically so i mean that, that was really where i was going with that but uh as far as uh you know as far as the recruiting class or what was even what were we was that just the thing that we were going on was that quarterback deal well no i, I mean the, the the point wasn't to put you on the spot and do a sort of gotcha uh point it was just to show oh, that I mean, well, yeah, I mean, we're, <laughs> I wouldn't bring you on the show and do that. You're not cash, Daniel. <laughs> you can do that. I don't <laughs> if you, if you want to feel any better about it, David, I put out a tweet around the same time with Derek LeBlanc and I, it was in response to someone and I'm kind of eating it now where I said, <laughs> I think we'll have a good feeling to whether or not there's a recruiting problem if he goes elsewhere. Cause you know, I've never heard of a player visiting a campus 15 times and going elsewhere. Um, and, and in fairness, defensive line recruiting is still not where it needs to be. There's a chance that changes this weekend with uh, several priority targets scheduled to come off the board, but I would take back that tweet right now for sure. Cause yeah. it was the same deal as Rashada. We, you know, we thought it was a panic mode and we are so accustomed to there not necessarily being a backup plan. Well, there was, and, and there was with the quarterback position. I think there is with the defensive line. There's a lot of talent on the defensive line in the state of Florida and in the Southeast region that Florida has stayed in the years of this entire time. So I'm eating that tweet right now. Well, and that's the point. I mean, that that's David, I mean, David you asked what the, the point was that that's it. And that Billy Napier and his staff do have a plan of attack in place, even when things look terrible, because like I said, you were absolutely correct at that time that Florida was in a bad spot. Because I wasn't thinking that Florida was going to lose Rashad at that point. I think that was back when he was sort of trending Florida. But I was thinking, yeah, if, if this doesn't go our way, there we're we're in trouble here. And we didn't get him. And we and as Zach just explained, we have a quarterback who, yes, is is more raw and will take more work on the on the coaching staff to develop him into an SEC starter than Rashada would have needed. But nonetheless, we got a guy with I think a similar ceiling. So that's just 
what, what Billy Napier does. He has this plan in place, even when none of us can see or know or even imagine it. Yeah, and that's what you like to see when you don't get what you wanted or if something goes bad, somebody has a plan to to make up for it or somebody has a plan to answer it. And that's what you got. And that's what you want to see on the recruiting trail. Maybe you miss on a, on a top guy, but can you get another top guy? And that's what Billy Napier did. Well, what this staff has done a good job of is if they miss on one guy, they've raised the floor that the next guy below him isn't that far below him in the ranking. Because, you know, if you go back and look at all the visits we've had throughout the spring and throughout the summer, the strategy is paying off by now they have fallback options. Okay, you didn't get, um, it was it John Collins, or uh, you didn't get uh, LeBlanc. But now this weekend, we might pick up two guys on the board who are honestly equally in rating or, you know, just right around the, where they are. So, this staff, because they put the legwork in behind the scenes on bringing guys to campus, because they're not lazy recruiters, they love to recruit. The floor for the fallback options is not that bad. And the other, and the other comment I'll make too about, I think everybody here was really stressed when the whole Rashada situation was going down. I know we, you know, I was talking to Neil. I know David. We talked a little bit about it. It, it was it, at the time. It seemed not. I don't want to say the end of the world, but it was a big deal because it became a national story. It became a national story because everybody was bringing in all the rumors about who offered what. And, you know, this Florida doesn't have, um, you know, their program in the right going in the right direction. They don't have NIL figured out. So it was a lot of negative press for Florida all at once. And everybody was taking note, including recruits and parents. So the concern was, is that they would take note of that and that there would be no momentum behind it. But then out of nowhere, you know, you get the commitment of Marcus Stokes, and then hours later, you get the commitment of Trayon Webb. And those guys are turning into some probably the strongest recruiters in the recruiting class for this year. Uh, and I know that Webb is hinted at that he's got, you know, hopefully some guys lined up. But because that they had a fallback option for all of these guys, the class now can thrive and move forward. So I think that's just a credit to the staff by, you know, having a plan in place and sticking to the plan regardless of what happens. I also have to point out that that Jaden Rashad story made national news because there was a lawyer involved who thought there was an N in the word proud in Michael Caspino, not a fan of him. And I just want to shout him out again and say that that little that that little bit of peacocking has not aged particularly well on your part. But that aside, I think it's time for a big finale of the show, guys. I mean, I, I told you guys before we got on the air, you were going to have to bring uh, the calculator or, or get your get your math skills sharpened up because it's time to do. I, I don't even know what the official term for this is, Chris. I, I called it. I think I, I, I wrote the article about this. I just call this uh, win projections. Is there a more like official Vegas term for what we're about to do? Uh, I'm not sure exactly. I don't know. What do you guys think? I don't know, but it's interesting. I will say that I don't know if I did the math right. I chose to write for a reason instead of study math or science or anything. But if it is, my number came out a bit higher than I was expecting. That's all I can say. Okay. Well, what's math? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You're you're the guy that that has all these uh like these these recruiting equivalents of of sabermetric stats on the Gators recruiting stats you're like a little uh 
not not little. You're you are a another version of Will Miles in that sense. <laughs> Will Miles is way smarter. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys, I mean, hey, you guys talk exactly the same. You're definitely cut from the same cloth. But yeah, so it's time to go game by game for the Gators 2022 schedule. We talked about the season as a whole a little bit, but now we're going to zoom in and go game by game and assign a percentage chance that we think Florida has to win all of the 12 games. And we will add those 12 up. And at the end, we will have our projected win total. So for example, if you, if we, if say I give Florida a 50% chance to win all 12 games, that comes out to be 0.5 plus 0.5 plus 0.5, et cetera. That comes out to be six. So I'm projecting Florida to go six and six. If I project Florida to have a 75% chance in all 12 games, then 0.75 plus 0.75 plus 0.75, et cetera, it comes out to be nine. I'm projecting Florida at nine and three. So that's the, the gist of what we're about to do. If there is a more politically correct Vegas term for this, please do not hesitate to let me know. But with that being said, let's start at the start. Utah comes to the swamp to start the Billy Napier era. Guys, what do we think? I put 40%. And it's it's because of how strong of a test that is. Again, it goes back to what we talked about at the very start of this. We've really not seen uh, an opponent like this at home for Florida right out of the gate. Now it helps it's at home. Again, it would have helped a lot if it were at like 12 o'clock. Um, with that, I, I do think that Florida will be the underdog, but this is when I look and start to think about what games will be one scores. It, it's that's easily the first one because it's obviously a totally different type of competition than what Utah is expecting to face. And yes, you know, three out of the past four years, uh, they've done a phenomenal job in the Pac-12, but Pac-12 against SEC football. I don't know. I think that they can come in and win this game, but also I won't be shocked at all if Florida is able to pull something off. I gave them a 55% chance to win the game. And my reasoning is, I mean, it's in the swamp. The, the weather's hot. This is something you talk guys aren't used to. The crowd is going to be sold out. We saw how loud that place got when they played Alabama. We saw how when the crowd got behind them, Florida came back in that game and took it to Alabama, was able to run the ball down their throats in that second half, play a little bit better defense, not turn the ball over. Um, you know, also, you go back, you look at Utah's games against uh, better teams like uh, Ohio State. They gave up a ton of points in that game. Um, they averaged giving up 23 points per game last year. Um, I, I, yeah, I think it's going to come down to Florida's defense. And I don't think Florida's defense can get as worse as it did in 2020, 2021. And uh, I think if they're playing more disciplined defense, can get some uh, maybe a turnover or two and even if they don't get any turnovers say they can keep utah from scoring seven turn it into three or maybe you do get a turnover in the red zone and, and maybe you flip the ball i mean that takes a score away from utah i think if you see a little bit better of defensive play which i think we will see and we already know we have better quarterback play we know that emory jones a trotting out there on the field bless him he's he's at a different place i hope he does well Anthony Richardson's a better quarterback. I think the wide receivers are a little bit more underlooked because of experience and a lot of other teams don't know, you know, how they are, what they do. I just think Florida's got a better, I don't know, I, I guess you could say skill level talent around, but Utah's got the experience. So I, I give Utah a slight edge based on experience wise. They did lose a little bit of guys, but retain most of their guys. So 
I'm giving them a 45% chance only because it's a home game and it's in the swamp. And that's why I'm giving Florida the edge with the 55%. I have a 52% chance to win this game. Uh, I think there's a, a disconnect right now between what we saw, what the media perceives Florida to be and maybe what Vegas does. I don't, I don't gamble, but I do look at what Vegas, how they value teams. And right now Vegas values Florida more than the way the media is valuing Florida. Florida against a top 10 opponent unranked is only a two and a half point underdog at home. Florida in the last several seasons has actually covered the spread 90% of the time when they've been an underdog. Uh, I, I do think that just because it's at night, it's Florida. It's still hot and humid at seven o'clock at night and it's still going to be hot and humid. It's not an atmosphere or uh, conditions weather-wise that Utah has ever played in. And I don't think they're going to be able to acclimate themselves uh, through fall camp, you know, unless they're going to come hang out in Florida for the next month. So I think the crowd is going to be, it's going to be a raucous atmosphere. It could be one of the highest attended games ever in the history of the swamp, being that it is Billy Nader's first game, being that it is a top 10 opponent. It's such a unique opponent. This crowd is going to be, we saw what they could do uh, against Alabama. The crowd last year against Alabama willed us back into that game and nearly helped pull it off, I think, for the players. I think that we're going to see a crazy atmosphere. I think Anthony Richardson's going to want to have something to prove as a quarterback that the hype is real. Um, and I think Florida, right now, I give 52% chance. I think they win a close, when we talk about close games, it's going to be a close game. It's going to be a one-score game one way or the other. Right now, I'm leaning Florida at 52%. I think the thing that that people who are, I don't want to say complaining, but they're they're pointing to the night kickoff and saying, oh, Utah dodged a bullet, are missing is that, yeah, maybe, but you're trading heat for a more raucous atmosphere. Because if the game's at noon, yeah, it may be hotter, but the crowd's, I mean, it's just a fact. Even though it is the Napier era debut, even though it is Utah, a top 10 opponent, it still is not going to be or still would not be what it is at 7 o'clock at night. So I, I I see this game as almost a virtual toss-up. I see a lot of similarities between the two teams. Yes, as Zach said, there's one in the Pac-12, one in the SEC, but they both have mobile quarterbacks, uh, Cam Rising for Utah and Richardson for Florida, who can also sling it. So true dual threats. They both have talent at skill positions. Utah has a couple of tight ends that are, actually do scare me a bit and that you know they, they could provide some mismatch nightmares for Florida. But Florida also has one of those, certainly in Keon Zipper. They have, I think, the best offensive line that they have had since how oh, maybe 2018 when we we when when Mullen kept some of the leftovers from the McElwain tenure. But yeah, I see this as a virtual toss-up as 50-50. And I think Florida's gonna get the extra one percent because it's in the swamp. So I mean, I think if this were played on a neutral field, I mean, if this were in Dallas or you know, Michigan or whatever, Florida loses, or, or I would certainly favor Utah given the high percentage. And certainly if it was a road game at Utah, I'd give them probably 65, 70% chance. But I think because it is in the swamp, I think because the crowd does have the ability, as Chris said, to will us back into games, even if we do get down two or three scores, I think that gives Florida a slight edge there. So uh, that is game one, game two, Kentucky, a similar situation in the sense that it is a team not from the American Southeast that's coming down to a place that is going to be hotter than they've ever really experienced. And, and again, a night game, again, a ranked opponent. Uh, what do we think? 
I was on SEC Mike's podcast um, back at SEC Media Days, and around that time, I thought that Kentucky would probably win this game too. But he made one point to me that kind of aligns with what you guys have said about the crowd willing this game back in. It's not just going to be the crowd that's passionate for this one. It's going to be Florida. This has got to be a top of their board of bulletin board material, uh, considering what we know of how Florida has traditionally played Kentucky and then how they've played Kentucky the past four years. This is going to be one of the most passionate games they play all year, in my opinion. Um, I'm also really not high on Will Levis whatsoever. I don't get the hype. I'm giving Florida 60%. I could move it up before. I mean, uh, so much of this, I I feel like it's tough for me to even go beyond the Utah game when making projections because I want to see what it looks like there and if the discipline and if everything that we've discussed throughout the show is what we end up seeing could be way different than what I'm projecting right now. So with that in mind, 60% for Florida to win against Kentucky, if they come out and beat Utah, suddenly I start to think that 60% is a little low. So for now, I'll be semi-conservative, but I, I've flipped my thinking there based off of some of the points you guys have made, as well as that conversation I had with Mike Bratton a while back. What kind of mayonnaise is he putting in his coffee? I, I say. <laughs> am leaving this podcast and going to go throw up. <laughs> I was, was going to say, you, you can't mention Will Levis without even touching on that. I was about to say, it depends on the brand of mayonnaise he puts in his coffee. No, I, I will say I, I give Florida 70% here. Um, you know, Will Levis, he's not exactly throwing to Wondell Robinson back there anymore. Um, there's some key guys, I guess, missing on their offensive line, I, I believe, as well. If, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong there, I think our defensive line is going to get nasty on these guys. Uh, Will Levis, I, I, I think I think he's an all right quarterback. I don't think he's a world beater quarterback or anything like that. But, you know, Stoops, he, he's recruited pretty well. So uh, Kentucky is, is not the same Kentucky that Florida has faced over the years. They're a lot better and talented team. But I just think Florida has the better talent. You know, it's another home game. And as you said, the bulletin board material from last year, um, you know, the, you finally don't have a 30-year streak at home or away anymore. So you don't have to worry about the pressure of, oh, we got to keep that streak alive or not. I think this is going to be a very passionate game. And as I said, there's no science to it. Florida has a better quarterback this year. They, they're going to have better talent. Um, you know, lots of guys on that defensive line that are older, Brenton Cox, Gervon Dexter, and I don't know. I just see Florida pulling it off. I don't think that there's going to be these big mistakes that you saw last year with all the penalties and that block kick, all that other kind of garbage that went on last year. Uh, you know, it, it took a lot for Kentucky to beat Florida last year by seven points for them to win that game, and I just don't think you're going to see it this year. Totally agree with all that. Um Honestly, I, I have it at 60% as well. And just even having this conversation, I, I feel like I probably would bump it maybe more to that 70 range where David has it. You know, Kentucky needed some fluky things to happen and go their way. Like, I mean, if if there were, I think there was a, was there a fault or a holding penalty in one of the plays where if that doesn't happen, then we have first and goal inside the 10 and we don't kick that field goal, that's blocked in return for a touchdown. I mean, we're talking about one to two plays that if it swings, the game is different. And that's on the road at Lexington. And despite it all, we were within five yards of tying the game in the last minute of the game. 
So I, I, I agree. I think this is one of those games where the players felt like the, that the Kentucky game was the turning point in the season last year. And it ultimately encapsulated and personified what that, what the, what the season was like. And I think that they are going to be fired up to play this game. It's the opening conference game of the SEC. It's at home. It's another night game. I think I wouldn't be shocked if Florida wins this game by two scores or more. I just think that they are going to be hungry to win this game and, and prove a point. Uh, and I'm, I'm not high on Will Levis as well. I think Will Levis is going to find out um, what it's like to not have Wondell Robinson throwing to anymore. Uh, he does have Chris Rodriguez, though, who is a very good running back in the SEC. So Chris Rodriguez is, is a little bit – I think they're probably their best offensive player, maybe their best player on the team. But I, I think Florida will be able to corral him and, and get a big victory. Yeah, um, so I don't really think particularly highly of Will Levis either to make that, a, I guess, a clean sweep. But I do think he's good enough to take advantage of a Florida secondary that maybe is scrambling and still sort of learning its assignments and feeling its way around in its second game. I mean, granted, a lot of adjustments do come between game one and game two, especially for a new regime and a new uh, scheme. But still think that maybe Florida has some holes in its secondary uh away from Jason Marshall that, that maybe he could at least attempt to exploit. But I think on the whole, I think the, the 60% number is about right. I'll say 59 just to be different, just also because I said 59 in the article I wrote about this. But um, I, I just think Kentucky's going to fight and make sure the game is not a blowout one way or another. I don't think that if Florida gets up, you know, 14-3, it's going to phase them. I don't think that that is something that a Mark Stoops team will do. But I give the I give the edge to Florida because of what I think will be a strengthened offensive line that can wear down that Kentucky defense in a four quarter game. Assuming we don't fumble, assuming you know we don't have eight false starts, which I mean it's at home, so hopefully we can do that to them. But I think that Florida has to be considered a slight but not huge favorite in this one. So I'll go fifty nine. So first two games, obviously are going to be huge. They're both ranked opponents, both at night. The third game is also at night, but it features a markedly different caliber of opponent. We'll go quickly through this one because I don't think any of us really see a huge problem here. What do we, what do we think uh, percent-wise, guys, against South Florida? I don't think we're even going to try and be different here, right? I think we're all 100. Well, I'm never, I will never say 100 after Georgia Southern. Okay. Well, yeah, that's a good point. I'm still going to say 100. I'm willing to be wrong. I got 99. Chris? I put 90. You know, it's it's probably the best, what, G5 opponent on our schedule. So I put 90, but, I mean, more probably like 95. But I'll go with 90. I'll say 98. Um, I mean, South Florida went 2-10 and 10 last year in the American. That's bad. That's really bad. Like, I think – Spoiler alert, I'm giving Florida a better percent chance against South Florida than I am against the FCS team that we play. So I'll say 98. Anyway, game four. Now we're back to facing real competition. It's a road trip to Rocky Top where the Gators have uh, pretty much owned the opponent that that plays there, home games there. Um, Tennessee with a quarterback that's gotten a lot of hype this offseason, much like Will Levis. They're not quite the same quarterback type, but nonetheless, they have gotten a lot of ink this offseason. Does have a receiver in Cedric Tillman that you know we have to be careful about, but, uh, but, but well, I shouldn't 
I shouldn't give too much away. What do we think, Zach? I've gone between 40 and 45. I, I am pretty high on Tennessee this year. I think they've got some defenders, too, that are quietly very good, especially off the edge. Um, but I, I'm a big fan of Hooker. Uh, comparatively to Levis, not so much of a fan. I think Hooker is a far better quarterback. Uh, and, and he was really exciting in that offense as it was being built. And dating back to my time watching UCF, I will give Josh Heupel credit for knowing how to scheme up an offense. And for Florida's first true road test, um, well, first road test at all, really in the Billy Napier era to go up against that type of tempo, their discipline will probably be tested more than any of the previous three games and up there for the most they'll be tested all season. So I'm not confident chalking it up for a win for Florida at this point. Again, it goes back to my point about Utah. They win that game and I'll change everything. Uh, but for now, I would go 40%. It's Tennessee. I mean, I know, I know. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I got them at 42%. I mean, it's a Nayland Stadium. It's an away game. And if you go down the roster of just who they've got, I mean, it's, it's pretty much all juniors and seniors here. And you look back at some of the games Tennessee had at the beginning of the year, they're still trying to figure out their identity. You get towards the end of the year, offensively, they did pretty well. I mean, they scored in the top 10 in offense in the nation, averaging 37.9 points per game. Uh, that's 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 a lot. <laughs> that's a lot of points to be scoring on your opponents. Um, they did pretty well against Alabama. Graded Alabama pulled the game off or whatever, but they were scoring points on a, on a, on a defense that didn't give up a lot as much either. Um, it gave Georgia a decent game there. Georgia's defense was just stifling though last year. Um, I've got him at forty two percent only based on the fact that uh, you know Heupel, he's a good offensive guru. They got a lot of older, like I said, junior, senior guys out there. And I think it's going to be the biggest test Florida is going to have this year so far in week four on the schedule. And, and, and if I was to match Tennessee up against Utah, I think that would be a pretty good offensive game. So I'll have to give Tennessee the edge here at, uh, you know, that 42 percent. But um, as I said, it's Tennessee, man. We always find a way to beat them somehow, even though when we're heavily not favored. So <laughs> that's kind of why I give Florida a little bit more than just 40 percent. But as I said, man, a uh, new head coach, he looks like he's doing a good job on offense. And uh, it's scary, man. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll stick with 42. I um, I'm. I might be on the higher end on this one. I don't know, depending on where Neil is. I'm at 48%. I do give Tennessee the edge. And if this game were playing Gainesville, I'd probably flip it and say 52. I think it, it really, I give the edge because it is a road game. It is the first true road game um, of the season. And I, I do think that Tennessee, uh, Teipel and Tennessee has some talent that they have figured out that offense where I could see it being one of those things where they may hit some big plays. And it gets the crowd in the game, and I and I and it starts to kind of go from there. I, this is a game where I want to see how they respond when adversity strikes. I think this is going to be outside of maybe, you know, we'll, I'm sure it'll happen in the Utah Kentucky game, but you're really going to feel it because the crowd's going to be against you in this game. So I want to see how the team responds, but ultimately, I think Tennessee has uh, just the edge being at home. It is a game though that if Florida gets it, I think that it changes dramatically the outlook of what the season could be and where the ceiling then goes from there. So if they're able to win this game uh, like they did in 2018 and, and Mullen's first year, where I think a lot of people back then even thought Tennessee was going to win that game. 
it changes the outlook on what, what possibility could happen as you look down the schedule and we'll get more into that, what we think the team can do. So 48% though. See, I just think that Florida is due to have one of those games where they they just don't play well. I mean, it can be the matter of them executing less than ideally. It can be a matter of them uh, maybe getting freaked out by the noise. I mean, Kentucky was able to do it with 55 or so thousand there. Well, I mean, you're going to double that for Neyland Stadium. Um, and it, it, it could get a little hectic for Florida after playing three games in a row to start the year in the swamp. Uh, I just think that Florida is bound to have a game at some point where they they just they freak themselves out, they get in their own heads, or they just don't execute and they turn the ball over and they self-destruct a bit. Anthony Richardson gives Florida a solid floor in terms of percent chances in every game, but on Rocky Top, they've lost five in a row to us. It's you know, they're they're one in sixteen in the last seventeen games. I, I think a lot of things have to give in this one. I think that Florida has gotten away with beating Tennessee teams that are better than them too many times. Um, I'm going to say law of averages has to kick in at some point, And I guess normalcy has to be restored to some degree here, but I'll say that Florida has a, a 32% chance. Um, definitely going to go on the low end here because I just think that this, I mean, this, this just reeks of a game where Florida doesn't play well. So, I mean, I think talent wise, it's, it's a 50, 50 proposition. I think if the game were in the swamp, I might change that, but on Rocky top, the first road game of the year, Tennessee is going to be, you know, up and ready to go against us the way that we're going to be up and ready to go against Kentucky. And they're going to have the crowd on their side, the way that we were talking about the crowd being on our side. So those are the first four games, uh, game number five. I don't think we have to spend too much time on Eastern Washington guys. 100 same as I can't say less than 100 after saying 100 for USF. I'll go 95 only because they made it to the FCS playoff. That's it. 99. I'll go 96 because they're, as far as FCS teams go, they're a very, very good one. So game five in the books, game six, Missouri, homecoming, Florida um, lost to Missouri last time they played them two years ago. They crushed them the year before that. They crushed them. The two years before that, Missouri crushed Florida. Very weird series. Then it kind of alternates two by two games at a time. Who bludgeons the other one? Last year was a close game. And Florida, this year seemingly with the decisive talent advantage. But as we saw in 2018, anything can happen. Uh, Zach, you first. What do you think? It's increased a little bit as I've thought about it more. I'm going 65. Um I think Missouri is a good team. I think it's a well-coached team, and certainly they've been a thorn in Florida's side for some time. But with the idea that this is a buy a, a bought-in team that's going to be disciplined, and under the assumption that they lose to Tennessee, then they come back and they have their cleanup game. I think that sets them up perfectly for a great crowd at homecoming to come back and beat a team that they know has been a thorn in their side for some time, and. I guess you can't say there's a ton of extra motivation to beat Missouri because Missouri did Florida a favor last year by beating them and sending Dan Mullen off, but it's still not a good feeling. And it's certainly not a team that Florida likes. We've seen the chippiness in this game before. And I think that the stars will kind of align for Florida to bounce back from last year's game and win. So I've got them at 65. I went 82%. <clears throat> on this one, um, I went a little bit higher, man. I just, 
Uh, very basic here, man. Uh, they did get our, our guy Tyron Hopper, which is a guy I'll be looking out for because I was very high on him, and he is an elite linebacker. So that's some guy to look out for from Missouri. Uh, I, I just, uh, I just think we're the way better team. I mean, that that game last year shouldn't even been close, and uh, it's. It's a different team, a different energy. The energy was gone out of that team at the end of the year, and and you know, may the force be with you, Missouri. But I just, mm-hmm. I think Florida pulls it off. Yeah, I'm I'm right there in the neighborhood as you, David. I, I said eighty percent. Um, I'm ready to stuff Drinkwitz in a locker. That guy's so annoying. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, but yeah, I mean, we lost by one point. You know, on a two point conversion with a team that had already quit on their coach. He got fired the next day. We're, we're going to be at home. It's going to be home first homecoming for Billy Napier. I think this team rolls. And as long as we're healthy, you know, we don't have any major injuries. Uh, we have the better talent and it's going to show on the field. And I think we get a big win. Um, this will probably be the largest margin of victory versus an SEC team yet on the schedule. I think so we'll, we'll win this one pretty big. Well, I mean, our two options against Missouri in that category are Kentucky and Tennessee. So definitely a step down in competition. But, yeah, I mean, I think Florida has a very good chance to win. I mean, the talent definitely favors Florida. Connor Basilak is gone. Not that he was a star, but they have a question mark there. Tyler Beatty is gone. They have question marks there. Um, it's not like they have another Albert O. I mean, he's been gone a couple of years, but it's not like they have that playmaker tight end that can just kill you. So Florida's got the talent edge pretty much everywhere on the field. I would not be stunned if the game is close, but I think that Florida has a very good chance to win, if that makes sense. So, you know, one one of those games where, like, I think the spread could be kind of close. It it could be single digits or so, but I think that the the percent chance to win definitely favors Florida um, pretty decisively. So I'll say I'll say 86 percent chance for Florida. So the Gators get another set of Tigers the week after that. LSU coming to the swamp, a team that Florida has amazingly only beaten three times since 2009. They're three and eight in the last 11 against LSU. Zach, I guess we've established the order now. You first. I'm going 50. I think it's probably one of the hardest games to read on the schedule because Either Brian Kelly is a great coach and he's going to make his weird ways work or it's going to be an absolutely beautiful crap show over there. I just don't know. Still like a lot of pieces they have on their roster, although they've got question marks as well. I really like the front seven of their defense. I think that is going to test Florida's run game. And then obviously it can make Anthony uncomfortable as well right out of the gate. I think they'll test him probably better than any team before you get to Georgia. Um, so give me 50 for now and probably ask me in week two or three to reassess because I'll not only want to check where Florida's at, but I'm certainly going to want to see where LSU is at. I got 45% here only because, uh, and this really just, it, it annoys me because Florida always plays these close games with LSU most of the time, but they always find a way to lose it somehow. Like why I'm I'm waiting for Florida to finally figure out how to play LSU in a close game and pull it off like in 2018. So this year, as I said, and I'm going to say this for every game, Florida's got a better quarterback if he stays healthy. We don't know if he'll be healthy by this game, Uh, but Richardson carved up that defense last year. And 
yeah, LSU was going through some troubles there for for a while with some injuries and all that other kind of stuff. But I just don't think it's going to be a game where Florida struggles to score. But as Zach just said, that front seven for uh, from uh, for LSU might give Anthony Richardson fits. So I got him at forty five just based on the fact that I can th- I think they can match them talent for talent. But let's see what happens. You know further on down the road and how much more confidence I have in the team by that game seven. You know, honestly, if we just learned to stop a counter, we probably could just win the game on that. <laughs> all kidding, all kidding is all kidding aside, I, I have it at 51. I think it is a swing game. This has just been a game. Um I can't that's I honestly I'm I'm I, I think it's been probably 15 years since we've beaten this team by two scores when we have won the game. So it is. It's a 50-50 game. I give us the fifty-one because we're at home. Anthony Richardson nearly won that game for us last year. If it weren't for the fact that our defense, you know, couldn't stop the counter, we probably do win that game. So it's another one of those games where it's like a one-score game that goes the other way. I right now slightly give us the edge. I I do think this is going to be a nail biter. I could see this playing out similarly to the way the twenty eighteen game played out. I guess that's what I'm kind of predicting is it's going to be that one score game where somebody makes a play at the end. And that's just kind of the way this rivalry has gone. So 51% against LSU. LSU games are almost always weird. There's always something. I mean, 2020, obviously the shoe. I mean, last year, just something last year was just unexplainably weird. Like Florida blocked a punt. They moved the ball very well, but then Richardson threw a pick and Emery threw a pick six. Emery throws another pick. Emory hits a Hail Mary because LSU doesn't even attempt to knock the ball away in the end zone to end the first half. Um, and then the fact that an LSU backup running back, Ty Davis Price wasn't even their starting running back. The fact that their backup running back puts up 287 yards on the ground, most of which came on one play, as Chris mentioned, the counterplay. Just so many weird things about it that defy all kinds of logic and explanation. I'm expecting another game that's somewhat like that where you know maybe we'll see the snap go over someone's head for a safety or you'll get a like a 35 yard loss because the guy runs backwards and forwards kind of like uh Bo Nix did in in 19 against us just just something like that I think could swing the game one way or another but I'm gonna lean LSU this way because I think like Zach mentioned they have a defensive front that's just disgusting uh Allie in particular is just nasty then they do have some offense too and they do have a, a guy in Keishon Boutte who can beat us as we remember from 2020 he can he can stretch the field vertically and make us pay so Florida's gonna have a puncher's chance because of Richardson but I'll say 41 percent for LSU so with that we are seven twelfths of the way through our game by game percent chances projections for the Gators in 2022 we are Almost two hours into this state of the program address pod, which means that we are obviously having a fantastic time with each other. And, you know, we can only hope that y'all are enjoying listening to this as much as we're enjoying putting it together. All right. Game number eight, Georgia in Jacksonville. The news broke earlier this week that both Florida and Georgia would be allowed to host recruits at the game in Jacksonville this year, which kind of shuts down the argument that Kirby Smart had to move the game to Athens and Gainesville so that both teams could host recruits. The NCAA did not allow schools to host recruits at neutral site games. The NCAA fixed that this week with that decision. So fun fact about that game, 
Going to be a tough one, guys. What do we think? Is it bad? I'm saying 10%. Like, is anyone going to come anywhere near that? Because I will adjust if I'm being way too harsh. But it's it's the defending national champions. Anthony is obviously not going to look like what he did last year. He's going to give them a better chance. But I just, until I see Florida you know, blow my expectations out of the water or see Georgia regress. I just can't in good conscience do much more than that. 100% to hell with Georgia. No, um, I got them at 32%. Um, as I said, I mean, they, they lost a lot of talent to the NFL. I mean, a lot of defense, but you know, Georgia recruits lights out. They're able to, you know, plug and play kind of just like kind of what Nick Saban does. Um, uh, you know, from what I saw last year, and, and I know you can't really go by last year because I saw so much, but we'll go by last year's team for Florida. They made some plays in that game. I mean, they had a couple picks. They held Brock Bowers to 35 yards in, in reception. So they, they played pretty well on defense. What killed them was turnovers. That last two minutes before halftime was god-awful. Um, you know, with without those turnovers in that game, you hold Georgia to maybe offensively having to stretch that field to actually score with like 13 points total. So I think Florida, you know, can defensively keep them, you know, on their heels. But I just think that Florida just has, I mean, not Florida, Georgia just has way too much talent and talent to back it up with. So I got them at 32% here. Zach, uh, don't feel bad. I had him, I have 10% as well. Um, I do predict that all Gator fans when they're, when they're tailgates, but you know, True. this is just one of those games where they do have the talent, right? They, they've, they have been recruiting at the best level in college football, really. I mean, consistently they've, and they've had the number one recruiting class, I think two or three times in the last four years. So that talent's still there, even though that they had a lot lead to the NFL. This game plays play 10 times. I think Georgia wins nine of them. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll see, you know, where the teams are at this point in the year. It's coming off a of bye week. Uh, I think it plays out similar once again, kind of maybe to the way the 2018 game played out, where Florida is in there. They hang in there for the half. Maybe they don't make those bad, egregious turnovers that just completely put the game away before halftime. They avoid that and stay at least in it into the third quarter. But I think ultimately – the talent is going to show up in the third, fourth quarter, the experience of being under uh, a coaching staff that's been there now for seven years is going to show up. And I think Georgia does win uh, comfortably by the end of this game. So that's why I have it at 10%. I'm going to go a little bit higher than both of you guys, but I think you're in the right first digit. I think you think your 10th digit is right. I'll say 19%. I think Richardson is a decisive upgrade over Stetson Bennett um, or not an upgrade. I just think Florida has the decisive advantage there, but Georgia has the edge everywhere else on the field talent wise. Um, I mean, a, a guy like Nolan Smith is ridiculously talented, going to step into a larger role, I think fairly seamlessly on the field. I mean, Keely Ringo is a guy, I mean, I mean, George has just out recruited Florida for the past decade and you, you can't undo that in one class. So Napier is going to have, I mean, a, major uphill battle in this one. But I think if Richardson plays well, we can see that 19% sort of rise. Like if you told me Richardson's going to have the game of his life and you don't tell me anything else about the game, I can probably raise that to about 35, 40. But I mean, without knowing that and 
knowing what did happen the last time he faced that defense granted very different defenses here but just from what we have seen um of him against Georgia in the past I got to keep it at 19 percent although I will point out that again there has been a precedent set of five lost Florida teams ruining Georgia's season in Jacksonville and beating them as pretty big underdogs but 19 percent seems about right um so that's game eight game nine is at texas a and m in college station florida goes there for the the third time in the last 11 years despite georgia having never in the history of ever having gone there um what do we think guys i am going to go 30 percent. same deal open to changing based on how things go um but you look at obviously it's not as extended as Georgia's recruiting prowess, but you can kind of apply the same thing to what AM's done over the past few years with Jimbo Fisher on the trail. And obviously this past year was unlike anything we've ever seen. Um, I mean, I could see Evan Stork coming in and having a great game as a freshman. I think he's going to be a star. And that's just one player from this past class. Um, obviously a tough environment. Kyle Field is no joke. I think Dan Mullen will tell you that. Um, and with that, 30, but based on results throughout the year, if they're a bit different than what I'm thinking, I could very easily push it into the 40 range. Because again, even though they've got these horses, I- I'm also still not sure what to think about AM as a whole. I don't know what to think about their quarterback situation. Um, to the point you made, Neil, kind of like with Georgia, I, I view Anthony as the very clear, better quarterback than whoever Texas A&M is going to trot out there. But the rest of the way, it's it's really leaning Texas A&M's way. So up to change, but for now I'm at 30. Yeah, I'm kind of at the same. I'm at 35, a little bit more. I give Florida a little bit more credit here, but at, at the same time, Zach pretty much had all the takeaways that I was really going to say. I mean, you, you do have questions at quarterback. I mean, Max Johnson did transfer there. Uh, as long as he doesn't run the counterplay, I'll, I'll, I'll be okay. But, uh, you know, no, no, just overall, just talent-wise, Texas A&M recruited a lot of talent, especially last year, but they're all young, so, you know, they got to grow. But as you said, Evan Stewart, he is a, a ball hawk as a wide receiver. I'm pretty sure they're going to have Jason Marshall on him that whole game. But, yeah, as I said, it's just an overall talent standpoint. You look at how many points Texas A&M gave up last year, 17.1 points per game, actually placed in the top five in defense. So, uh, as I said, man, uh, it's going to be a challenge for Florida. It's going to be a way once again. I give them 35%, but I hopefully I can give them a little bit more towards towards that game once I see you know how these receivers and, and how this uh, team comes together towards the end of the season because a lot of teams change from the beginning of the season to the end of the season. Boy, we're really on it. Uh, I got 30% as well. Uh, I think for all the reasons you all mentioned, it's they just they are a better team. They're more talented. They've certainly had our number uh, recently in this game. Uh, and, and, and it is a game where it could be revised one way or another, depending on how the season goes. Personally, um, just kind of reading through the preseason magazines, I'm high on Texas A&M. I think Texas A&M could be a one or two lost team. And, and one of those being to Alabama and, and they could very well just finish 11 and one. I think they do have the ability to do that. Jimbo's got to put it together at this point. He's got the recruiting. Finally, uh, he's been there many years. He's got to put it together. 
So I, it is a, it's a late game. We're going to be coming off probably pretty battered from a tough Georgia game and, and really a tough stretch of the schedule, even though we do have the bye week in there. I think it, it really does catch up to us in a game like this when you got to go on the road. So I'm going to put it at 30% as well. Yeah, I mean, you guys are always – me going last means that y'all have taken all the good talking points. But, I mean, I pretty much agree with everything. Um, again, I will say that Florida does have the quarterback advantage. Anthony Richardson is better than whoever they may trot out there. Probably will be Max Johnson. But, I mean, Texas A&M's loaded again. For the, I, I mean, it's the third team in a row that we're talking about with LSU, Georgia, and Texas A&M of Florida facing a team that they have a better quarterback than, but this other team is – pretty much better everywhere else. Maybe Florida has the edge with a better secondary, but that would be about it. Um, they have weapons. Devin A-Chain uh, rejoining the team is going to help them, obviously, without, you know, with him not facing a lengthy suspension after his off-field issues. Um, I think their offensive line and their defensive line are going to make the difference, though. So, I mean, Florida's Florida's got some dogs there. I mean, Florida does have Dexter on the defensive line. They do have Osiris Torrance. I'm expecting big things out of Ethan White and uh and garage this year but i mean those are just those are just some nasty nasty players in those trenches for AM. so i will say 28 percent for florida again if richardson gets hot and just starts making all the plays that he could possibly make florida probably has that win percentage extended upwards to maybe 40 or 45 but again without knowing that i'll say 28 um just between just between one out of four and three out of 10. So that is 75% of the season. Let's talk about the last three games where at least it appears the competition will drop off, uh, starting with our home finale, senior day, South Carolina. Florida's got some revenge possibly on its minds. Gamecocks do have a new quarterback, though, one that Florida fans will remember in a not-so-fond fashion in Spencer Rattler. Zach? You established that you go first, so go for it again, man. What do you think? I think Florida wins, but I have this one close. I've got it at 55. I think they squeak it out. I, I think Rattler has a bounce back year. I think he's going to be comfortable in what they're doing over there, especially with, you know, not much, but a little bit of familiarity with Shane Beamer from before this. And I think that they've got a solid roster. Um but I, to, to your point of them being kind of battered from the past three games, and granted, there's a bye week in between LSU and Georgia, but a neutral site game followed by an away game against easily your two toughest opponents, the one that I'm, I'm picking easily over Florida compared to anyone else on the schedule, they are going to be a bit battered. You know, what are the injuries going to look like? Obviously unpredictable at this point, but it, it, it could be one of those games where it's kind of down to the wire. Um, and to the point of with Kentucky of the bulletin board material, I think this is a bulletin board material game to where they're going 110% effort on every play to ensure that they don't lose to South Carolina again. Uh, and the home field is certainly going to help. But w- with all of these factors combined, I don't think it's going to be an easy win for Florida whatsoever. It's one I think they can and will pull off, but I think it'll be down to the wire. 
I'm going a little bit different here, man. Uh, this is actually funny. I'm at 80%. Um, I, I don't really, I, I just don't think Spencer Rattler is that great of a quarterback. I think he was, I mean, it, this goes back to what was it, that Louisville quarterback that just put a hurt on us in the, in the, uh, the Sugar Bowl of 2012. I mean, Bridgewater, yeah. Bridgewater, yeah. I mean, after that, Bridgewater, he was pretty decent for Louisville. But really, what did he really do after that Sugar Bowl? I mean, nothing. I mean, Spencer Rattler, he had that game against Florida. We knew Florida wasn't going to win that game going into that bowl game. And he really, you know, he goes to Oklahoma. He gets beat out by another quarterback. Uh, yeah, this is his second chance. He's going to want to prove himself. But does, does South Carolina have Oklahoma talent? No, they don't. He's not surrounded by the talent that he had at Oklahoma. I think Florida, you know, they quit, obviously, by the end of this, of this season. That's why, you know, South Carolina was able to just do whatever they wanted to to Florida. I think Florida's going to be up for this game. And I, I don't know, man. I, I just have a hunkering that Florida will just go in there and take it to South Carolina, but I could be wrong as well. I'll go down the middle here and say 65%. I think that I agree. I think South Carolina is going to be a little bit better than that, David. I, I and, and, and Rattler, I do think he plays well, but, you know, this is one of those kind of that stretch of the schedule for Florida where they've got to, Put it together, you know, potentially as we're, we're talking here is that they're going to have already suffered at least two to three losses by this point minimum in the schedule. So this is where that we're going to see the difference from last year to this. Can this team rally and finish the season strong against three opponents that they for all intents and purposes should be favored against and being at home? Being that it is uh, the second to last SEC game in the schedule and they need to get probably a win here after coming off Georgia and AM, I, I think there's going to be a sense of urgency for this team to get the W, and they do, and I, and I put them at 65%. Oh, I'm going to go a good bit higher than that, but I think less than David. You said 80. I'm going to go yeah, 77%. Um, I just – I don't know. I, I like funny numbers that don't end in zero or five, but no, um, I, I mean, look, South Carolina is not a joke. They're not Vanderbilt. They're not Eastern Washington. They're not South Florida. Um, I wouldn't even say that they're Missouri. I think they're better than them talent wise, but Florida, these, I know I'm going to get burned by saying this. It happens at least once every other year, but Florida and South Carolina don't recruit for the most part, with some exceptions, but Florida and South Carolina do not recruit the same caliber of athlete. And in some of the rare cases that they do, like Jaden Robinson, Florida winds up taking him away from them whenever they want. I mean, there are exceptions. You know, Jordan Birch was, was a guy a couple classes ago. Yeah, Florida would have been Florida would have loved to have him. Um, a guy like Pup Howard sticks out as an exception. For the most part, Florida and South Carolina don't recruit the same caliber of athlete. Now, Spencer Rattler is a guy that if Florida's defense messes around he can beat them you know he's not going to be missing wide open throws like Stetson Bennett did in 2020 against us for Georgia but he's also not a guy that um like Zach said this is not Oklahoma talent that is around him these are South Carolina guys that are around him and I don't think that that really um sets up a situation where Florida fans should be too worried about this so you know barring the obvious stuff unless they turn the ball over five times unless they commit 12 penalties or so. I don't think that Florida fans should be too worried. Yes. Florida has to show up. Yes. Florida has to do their jobs. You can't sleepwalk to a win here, but I think if Florida plays the way that, that they should play, this game is not going to be 
one to be scared about. So I'll go 77% for Florida. So that's the end of the home games. We got two road games to finish up the season. I hope y'all have been, well, no, you guys, I think uh, had written down your, your totals before we started. So you have your numbers um, kept track of, but two games left. Florida finishes up its SEC season at Vanderbilt in Nashville. Late November, it could be cold. Florida probably going to know it's SEC East fate one way or another by the time this game starts. Probably won't be you know, relying on a Georgia loss, or they probably won't be needing to win it or to clinch or anything at this point. It'll probably be decided. But, Zach, what do we think? I'm going 90. I just – I mean, it's Vanderbilt. I obviously won't say 100 because they're an SEC team compared to the other guys that I gave 100 to. But with the idea that discipline is the focus for this team to get better, and obviously that's broad, but it, I mean, it, it's going to have a trickle down effect to so many different aspects of the way Florida plays football. If they walk into Nashville and are a disciplined team, that's all I need to have a ton of confidence in that game. I'm sorry, man. It's Vanderbilt. I got them at 100, man. <laughs> I'm right there with you, Zach. I have I had an ex, I put 89 down, um, but yeah, right around that 90 percent range. For all the reasons mentioned, we should we should beat them pretty good. I'm gonna say 94. Um, I will say the one thing is if it's cold, the ball can kind of turn into a rock. Does that create drops? Does that create guys maybe I don't want to say losing focus, but maybe the technique starts to suffer. Maybe they focus a little bit more on on you know just trying to keep warm than in executing the technique. And I don't know, maybe that makes things a little bit weird, but I think if, if the cold does affect Florida, it would be in the sense of, of costing them a victory against the spread as opposed to actually winning the game. I don't think the game itself is in much jeopardy. So I can, I can see a super ugly game, like a, like a 31 13 or like a 24 six or something like that, where both teams just kind of slug their way up and down the field um, you know, three or four yards at a time, but I don't think the outcome is really in jeopardy. So I'll go 94 for that season finale, Florida FSU in Tallahassee, bit of a weird situation here. It's a Friday night game on black Friday, doubly weird for Florida because they have a super short week traveling back from Nashville on Saturday, then hopping on a bus for two and a half hours or three or four, depending on traffic, but a really, really short week that the team isn't really, I don't think anyone on the team has really ever experienced before. Um, maybe that makes things a little odd, but I'll stop and I'll let Zach give his synopsis. Zach, what do you think? I think that's a great point. It's not even one I had really considered because I actually just now pulled up Florida State's depth chart to make sure that 60% wasn't too low. And, and I was starting to think, you know, I'm looking at this roster and I was, it, it might be a bit too low, uh, but those are good points. Um, also, you know, going to Florida State, have to factor that in somehow. A um, little bit more familiarity, obviously, with players and coaches. Now, if Mike Norvell's gone by this point, which isn't out of the realm of possibility, then that kind of changes everything. But, you know, it's a rivalry. And even this past year, you know, Greg Knox coming in and beating Florida State was was pretty huge, and it should give me a lot of confidence. But I, I don't know just this weird feeling I've got that it, it it's going to be around 60. It's a game Florida pulls off, ends the season on a high note, winning against their biggest rival on the road. Well, biggest, their in-state rival on the road, I should say. But 
I could see it being a little closer than maybe some will expect. Yeah, I got him at 76%. As I said, it's not a home game. And I actually kind of like Jordan Travis at quarterback. I think he's actually a pretty decent quarterback. He's not, as I said, he's not going to light the, the, the your hair on fire or anything like that. But I, I mean, I think Florida State has decent quarterback play. It's the talent around them and and the coaching. And it's just been, it's just been bizarre how much Florida State has fallen off ever since Willie Taggart and... Uh, you know, I'll, uh, you know, Norvell coming in, and it's just—I don't know. I—I I, I give them the advantage of the home game. I give them the advantage of having a decent quarterback. But as I look down this list of like the roster, I really can't point out a guy that stands out to me as a somebody that could threaten for maybe a Micah Pittman. But that's it. Like that—that's all I see from this roster. So I'm going to give Florida the 76% edge just based on the fact it is not a home game. I do believe in Jordan Travis as a decent quarterback, but that's about it. Yeah, you know, this is a tough one uh, percentage-wise. I'd put us at 57%. I could see a case for it to be a little bit higher for that. You look at the roster, it is still devoid of talent. Uh, they've hit on a couple of guys recently, but they have really missed on the elite guys that are going to take that roster to the next level. You know, Norvell has taken this approach that he's going to plug and play uh transfer portal guys kind of everywhere on the roster and history shows that none is not necessarily a good thing to do this is also kind of a game too where you go into it and you look at it at the end of the schedule and you think you know how it's going to play out and then the rest of the season plays out and then you change your opinion so and that and that's kind of been the case um at least like a couple years before the the willie taggart era so i'll put this at 57 percent and for the reasons you know, kind of talked about too, it's a it's a weird week. The turnaround time is tough. Uh, it's playing on a Friday night, which you know, God, we that is just a terrible thing that we have to play Friday night lights. High school, you know, the high school is playing on Friday. Something we just don't do here at the University of Florida. So, fifty-seven percent. What we do end it on a high note, and uh, maybe send Norville back, and who knows. I will say, though, it shortens an already short week for Florida even more. I think that ultimately it's worse for FSU to be the home team than it is for Florida to be the road team because their massive advantage of having all their students come back for the game is gone. Because, I mean, a lot of kids from like Miami, Fort Lauderdale, even Orlando, you know, go to FSU. That's a solid four or five hours in a car that they're going to have to put in starting early Friday morning. That just doesn't appeal to college kids. So I think a lot of what could be a pretty good home field crowd on a, on a normal environment on a Saturday is going to be reduced a bit because of that. So it, it definitely works both ways. And I, I'm not a fan of the Friday night game either, but I'll say 70 because FSU is definitely better on, on the offensive line and defensive line than they have been in previous years. But I think that's really just them taking the step from laughably incompetent in in 18 and 19 in the trenches to just plain awful like garden variety awful in in 20 to just plain bad in 21 and i think now they've taken the step up to just competent or adequate or average and that's still not enough i don't think to match up with what florida's got uh with dexter and and princely and uh, Ventral Miller, if he wants to come up into the box. And I think Florida's offensive line is going to be ready for their defensive line too. I mean, Robert Cooper is a guy I look at and say, all right, he could cause problems for us. But 
on the whole, I mean, the game is one in the trenches and Florida pound for pound, I think has a still a, a, a strong advantage, not a monstrous advantage, but a, a fairly noticeable one um, in the trenches. So again, this could get changed quite drastically numbered wise. If Florida winds up, I don't know, 11 and 0 or 10 and one and chasing a playoff spot or, you know, if, if FSU is two and nine and Norvell is gone and they don't care. I mean, obviously games late in the year like that tend to be given these numbers with very low degrees of confidence, but I'll say 70 for right now, not knowing anything about the future of Norvell and not knowing how either team's season will go. So guys, um, we're, we've all been tasked with keeping track of our numbers. Um, Zach, what have you got? I am bad at math. Uh, my number was wrong earlier. I'm at seven flat, actually, which adds up to just about what I've been saying all along. Um, that's six and six to seven and five. So from this point on, I'm going to call it seven and five. Um, and to keep it with the same theme I've said all along, you know, they come out and they surprise me in that Utah game or, you know, there are a bunch of one score games. My confidence will raise. That number will go up as the season goes along. But yeah, right now I am seven on the dot. Yeah, mine came out to 8.1, which is actually really funny because I did, I was on a radio station, I was on Mark Ryan's radio station earlier today, and I said 8 and 4, and I had the floor at 7 and 5. So right now it's 8.1, 8 and 4 is what I originally predicted anyway, so my numbers are coming out right as uh, as I calculate all of this, and I hope I did it correctly. I came out to 7.31. Personally, I think I lean more on the 8 and 4 uh, end of the seven, you know, that ends up between seven and eight. So I'm going to say eight and four is the, is the record. Although, you know, if we win the swing games, like, I, cause I have a couple of games like Utah, 52%, Tennessee, 48, LSU, 51, you know, if you win those, if, if like say Tennessee, you know, swings or, you know, one of those games swings the right way for us, then that's where I think you get that eight, nine game uh, win total where I think kind of the ceiling is, is, is looking for us. So mine came out to be 7.51, which is almost dead even between seven and eight, which means that I think that seven and a half is a really, really, really good over under for Vegas to put out on Florida. I'm going to lean eight and four. I mean, obviously, because 7.51 is a little bit closer to eight than it is to seven. I'm going to lean as... With a low degree of confidence, I will say eight and four is the most likely scenario. I think seven and five obviously is a very similarly likely, but microscopically less so um, likely scenario for Florida. I think Florida could have a season though that's like 2012 in that a lot of things go their way and they win a lot of toss-up games. The big difference being the fact that they have a quarterback that has the traits of an NFL quarterback this year, whereas 2012, it was on the, on the back of the defense. Yeah. I mean, we seem to all be in the same ballpark here. We're all thinking the range of seven and five to nine and three, I think is, is a reasonable range for Florida. You know, guys, we've been surprised before we've seen miraculous things happen with, with big time quarterbacks, like, um, like Anthony Richardson appears to be for sure. I think that's going to wrap it up for the show because we've been on for two hours and we haven't really talked about ourselves. We talked about the Gators. I guess it's only fair to end the show by giving y'all an opportunity to tell us where we can find you and we can hear you. I think everyone 
who's listening to this knows who you guys are, but just in case they don't, I guess Zach, you've been going first with all this stuff so far. So uh, tell us where we can, can read you, can listen to you and can find more of your stuff. Yeah. First, thanks for having me on. I mean, no matter how long we went, this was fantastic conversation. Uh, really glad to have been a part of it. Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at Zach underscore Goodall spelled uh, Z-A-C-H uh, because it's the correct way. And, um, and all my work's over at allgators.com. Uh, we announced today that there's some changes going on there in terms of our structure, but we've got a new number two reporter in Brandon Carroll, who's a student here about to graduate and is joining us full time. And uh, I like to think I'm pretty good at what I do, especially because I got started so young and really learned from a lot of great people. Brandon has surrounded himself with a lot of great people is far more driven, is far more polished than I was at his age, and he's a star. So I don't even need to focus on myself so much here, but do me a favor and help me get him over the 2K hump. Follow at It's B. Carroll as well. There you go. Shout out for uh, Mr. Brandon Carroll there. Yeah, you can find me at www.gettingswamp.com. I don't really, I post an article every now and then, but really I just kind of update the news on that site, post my podcast, but you can find my podcast at Swamped Podcast on Twitter, or you could just go on any platform, type in Getting Swamped. It's there. I have a great guest on there, like Zach. Got to get Chris and Neil on there at some time. But yeah, that's basically where you can find me. And if you don't find me anywhere else, you can find me on Twitter making some videos and making some uh, other teams mad that we play in the SEC. So. <laughs> Oh yes, we gotta we gotta point that out, uh, David. It's all so. There's a guy on Twitter named Billy Long that is uh, sorry, but he is the best. He is the goat. Oh, yeah, at, yeah, yeah. At putting out videos, I think it's fair to say you're second in command. I think you put out the second best uh, videos. I'm the, I'm the CEO. He's the owner, man. He never misses. I miss maybe sometimes, but I hardly. Do. <laughs> Billy Long is elite at these. And it's just these little 10 second videos with like. A, a clip of SpongeBob or The Office or Family Guy or South Park or something that's just so so relevant, so relatable, and he's just so quick with it. He just like instantly recalls a scene and makes it relevant to whatever stupidity an FSU or Miami or Georgia fan is spewing out. <laughs> um, yeah, Chris, um, I think everyone. Yeah, we introduced you last show, but go ahead and shout yourself out again. Why not? No, no, it's been great. Great uh, first two episodes to be a part of. And uh, David, Zach, thanks for joining tonight. It was it was great chatting it up and just makes me more excited for the season. So for all of you uh, guys listening out there, you can find me at Mr. Chris Bits on Twitter. Um, you know, I kind of I just keep up with it. I post about everything related to, to Gator football and, and obviously big promoter of, of uh, the show here. And obviously this, the work that the Gator Collective is doing as well. Um, some of you that probably have heard me on some of the spaces. One, I think I did a couple of with David uh, in the past. So definitely look forward to hopefully doing some more of those again in the future. But uh, this is great. Excited for football season and uh, the, the best is yet to come, hopefully. Oh, yeah, for sure. And of course, while we're shouting things out, I now have a new Instagram account that y'all should go follow me on. Um, at all kinds weather blog, there's a B L O G at the end of the at name. Someone hacked into my old one is posting, uh, I don't need to go into details, but is, is posting some pretty disgusting things when, I mean, when, if it's not a scam, it's just, just awful stuff. So I don't need to get into it anymore, but, um, yeah, just obviously y'all listening to this understand that, you know, the stuff that they're. Whoever it is is just posting that does not exist in my diction. I don't 
and I'll talk like that. So I'm glad everyone, I'm glad most people figure that out. But just in case there's any doubt about that, uh, yeah, not me. I don't, I don't do scams. I don't use, you know, bigoted words like that um, to people who call out the scams. So yeah, at all kinds weather blog is my new Instagram. Follow me there and get me as many followers as I once had, please. I'm very, very irritated about that. But yeah, I mean, not to end the show on a down note, this was amazing. Chris, David, Zach, y'all made for an excellent panel. Great discussion that lasted almost two and a half hours. Thank you guys. Thank you. That's, that's probably the best place to end it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You made for an awesome discussion and I can't wait to have everyone listen to it. Yeah, man, I really enjoyed it. It was like one of those Iron Man matches. You know, if you watch wrestling, it goes on for like an hour or so, and you you throw some punches, you get your pinfalls in, and you see who wins in the end. It was really fun, man. Really fun to to do this with you, and hopefully we can be on again. Absolutely. Sure. Thank you, guys. Y'all are welcome on whenever, man. You, you guys are awesome. So, yep, y'all stay safe, stay healthy. We will see you in the swamp in about three weeks. Go Gators. I know, Zach, it's it's weird because we we usually end shows by having everyone yell out, go Gators. But as a non-Gator fan, I know that that you have come around to to rooting for the team in the sense that you it's more fun for you to cover winning players than it is losing players and winning coaches rather than losing coaches. So in that sense, I guess I can I can get that out of you, right? You can. Uh, covering good football is good. And I have the most fun doing this job when Florida plays good football. Fair enough. Well, thank you guys again, and go Gators. Go Gators. Go Gators. Go good football. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Thank you, guys. Thank you.